Welcome baby boomers, Generation X, Millennials, and Generation Z, and any other generation I may have forgot to the A-Space podcast. We're about to run the intro, thanks in part to I Am Him Beats. This is the whole point of this podcast. What we need to do is to open up a healthy discussion about this issue. You can't get rid of an idea by pretending it doesn't exist. You gotta get outside of your household and try to make meaningful, deep connections with other people, and then you can probably consider those other people family. That'll probably be one of the things that drive us to becoming a more caring world. You know what I'm saying? Like, Welcome to the podcast, which is available on podcast services around the globe. This podcast is a Stitcher Premium affiliate. With Stitcher Premium, you can get episodes of some of your favorite podcasts ad-free. You can also get Stitcher Originals. And if you listen to this podcast, you can get one free month of Stitcher Premium on us by using code ASPACE at checkout. That's code ASPACE at checkout to get one free month of Stitcher Premium on us. Why not do it? You can also catch us on social media channels at A Space Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email us at aspacepodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. We're going straight to the podcast. Podcast number seven, folks. Gambler here with Nimbus, the AP. Hello. Welcome to today's podcast. Welcome to the first podcast of the year. Of 2020. Welcome to 2020, folks. I'm super excited. What do you call 2020? This is... 2020? This is a centennial (laughs) decade. Well, every decade now is a centennial decade in the 20s, but... Or in the 2000s, rather, but more importantly... Every day of every month of every year for the next decade is going to be a 100-year anniversary day of the Roaring Twenties. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Widely considered the golden age, so to speak, in American history, despite the prohibition that went on for 13 years from 1920 to 1933. And the racism. Sorry, housewives. Yeah, well, Jim Crow lasted a lot longer prohibition, so... (laughs) 
You could argue it's still going on. So it's a pretty good time in the 20s for white people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I hope everybody's doing well. And, um, you know, we haven't talked to you guys and had conversations with you guys since 2020. And we just wanted to give thanks to all our listeners out there who made 2019 on the back end for us such an awesome year by listening to us talk. That's a crazy thing. People come over here and they get on the mic and they talk to you and you listen to them. And it's awesome. Um, so we just wanted to tell you guys thank you so much. Um, Walt, I'm talking to you, buddy. And I'm going to know if you listen or not because next time I see your ass at my bar, I'm going to ask you. Because <laughs> I told you when I saw you earlier tonight before I had to come here and get it, put in some work. So here's your shout out, Walt. If you don't catch this shit by the next time I see you, I'm going to chew your ass out. Yeah, Mr. Disney. Give us some of that money. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Um, I want to start off the podcast just like kind of getting kind of personal. Mm. Um, just like because we went through Thanksgiving. Yeah. Talked about family. Uh-huh. And um, we went through Christmas. And this is our first time recording. And we never really touched on, like, who and what we're thankful for. So, Right. So giving I mean, thanks. Yeah, giving thanks. Like, what are you thankful for? Who are you thankful for? Oh, that's a short list. <laughs> um, I'm thankful for my wife, who is the absolute center of my reality. If it wasn't for her, I don't think I'd bother putting in. 95% of the effort I put in on a daily basis. Shout out to my wife, Lynn. You're the best. I'm thankful for my brothers. You know who you are out there. The list is short, but I'm not going to run through it. Because I don't necessarily have everybody's explicit permission. Just name drop. So, to my brothers and my sisters out there, thank you guys for doing what you do and being who you are. Because I think the world needs more people like you. I'm grateful for my mom. God bless her. Always breaking her back to make everything work in the family. Cheers to that. And I'm grateful for my nieces and my nephews. Gives me some hope for the future. At least I know a certain number of kids will grow up right with the right kind of head on their shoulders and They'll grow up being somewhat equipped for the disaster that they're going to inherit from our generation. Hashtag, I ran. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> Bro, I ran don't want this shit, son. I ran don't want this shit. That's not what it's about right now. <laughs> I'm thankful for the military might of the United States of America, baby. That was the most country boy thing you could have said right now. I don't know. And I'm thankful for the Second Amendment, despite the fact that it's under attack Yeah, all over the states. But I'm very grateful that it is still a federal law. Sorry, pro-anti-gun states. Or, mm-hmm. sorry, pro. Yeah, pro-anti-gun states. Mm-hmm. But it's still a federal thing. You're never going to win that in a federal court. It's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm truly grateful just to be here in this country. 
I really am. Despite all of our flaws and all of our fuck-ups. I've read the histories. I've read the accurate histories and the whitewashed histories. And I'm still grateful to be where I was born. I would not want to be anywhere else. What about you? Man, I... Going through the holidays, man, I was grateful for so many people. Um, oh, one thing that happens when you go through a lot in your life is that when you become an adult and you're raising a family and you're engaged in a marriage, you realize there's some shit you just got to get over. You just you got to get over it. You got to get over it. You got to attack it. And you got to... Stop blaming people for stuff or letting stuff hold you back. Mm -hmm. And if that means forgiving some people or if that means like placing the blame on yourself when you probably should have placed it on yourself, that's probably what you're going to have to do. So with me and my dad, it's been this long ongoing process of like forgiving him and kind of like unblaming him for some of the stuff that I blamed him for because as a kid... Now I'm a parent, and I know there's just some stuff going on you just don't know about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're all people. We all go through stuff, and I think we look at our parents like they're these awesome supreme beings. And I mean, that's good to a point. It's good to look up to your parent as a leadership figure. That's what we should be doing. But I feel like when get older and you're doing this stuff on your own you look back and you know what your experience is and you're like man this person that was raising me was just another person like mostly with everything together and had most stuff figured out but they were still figuring out a lot of stuff like we we forget the vast like when we talk about education Mm -hmm. we forget the vast stuff that we're not educated on just as Americans or even in my case as like you know black people in America Mm -hmm. being a minority there's just some things that you're probably not privy to that other people are and knowing that people are still going going through a process and still going through a journey you just gotta forgive and unblame I mean and like now like I don't know I went through the period in my marriage First couple years where like it wasn't good. It wasn't good in my marriage. Like it wasn't good in my home life, financial. It just just wasn't good, and I blamed like all different types of things for it. When really, it was me. Like I I can blame everybody for it, and you can probably see where some things have influence. But when you become an adult and you become a leader, like you can't really let like you have to reinvent yourself so I just want to give a big shout out to my dad I'm thankful for him and all the things that he did do and all the things that he's going to do and I just want to put it out there that he did a damn good job I want to thank my mom um who uh was just a strong person and she would just be known as being like a trailblazer. She's awesome. She raised me pretty much 
after my parents split up and, you know, it wasn't easy and she went through it. Um, that's the story of the black experience, really. Um, I wanted to thank, again, the people that listen to the podcast. For me and Gambler, this is something that like we're kind of heavily invested in. So it takes up a lot of our time and logging in and seeing the insights and the analytics and seeing that people are actually clicking the button and listening. Yo, I really thank you for that. Yeah, Walt. <laughs> yeah, Walt. What's up, Walt? It, it's 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 Nimbus. He's always hey. telling me I'm gonna listen. Because <laughs> so Walt listens right. to podcasts like all the time. Like he says, yeah. he barely ever listens to music anymore, which is very common for podcast listeners. Mm. So shout out to all you listeners out there because you spend most of your day listening to us ramble. So thank you, thank you, thank you for the blessings and any insight that you think that we bring to your life. That's something that we can't necessarily know when we do this, but we hope that it does occur. So thank you. And Walt, once again, I'm going to ask you next time I see you, if you've listened to this, I'm going to ask you exactly how many shout outs I gave you. And I'm going to know if you listen. There you go, Walt. You went so bad Disney money. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Walt Disney. Encompassing all this and with me through this whole journey of like learning to appreciate people has been my wife who's like put up with me over the past five <laughs> years worked through whatever I needed to work through and us doing this parenting thing and adulting thing together like she's amazing and had I gone back in time and had she been the first person I would have thanked I would have done that but you know uh, I feel like she deserves a special paid place where I put her because when she came into my life, going through all the things that I went through, like she kind of helped me with realizing that like your dad's not the problem. And like there's some things that you have with your mom that's not the problem. And then there's some people who come along in your life and they're trying to teach you things and be there for you. And they are not the problem. Because I can be the type of person that's like quick, quick to cut somebody off. Because I'm, I'm not dealing with that. Mm-hmm. So she she helped me a lot with that. And just all the random people. Yo, nobody thinks the random encounters anymore. I've had mm. situations in life where I've encountered some person once in life. And they have made a lasting impression and changed my life, literally. So all those random people out there who see me on the street, you probably don't know who this voice is. <laughs> you probably don't remember. But there's some crazy stuff that I've witnessed and gone through in my life with random encounters. That's just been, like, cool. That lady who gave me that custom pen, I still use that freaking pen. Oh, that wood one? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that one was nice. Yeah, yeah. So thank you, random lady, because I got to use it, too, for about six months. And I used it every day, writing in my journal, writing in my my poetry, my short stories that I write down. I write, I write them and rewrite them like eight times. It's part of my process right. before I even bother putting it on a computer. Because once it's on a computer, I feel like it 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 kind of loses the originality. Mm-hmm. Seems like a silly thing to say, but it's like it's harder to like say that it's coming from me. Right. But anyway, so thank you to that lady because that pen was so nice. Oh yeah. How do you replace the ink on that thing? Does it, does it unscrew? Have you not run out of ink yet? No, not yet. That means you ain't writing enough. 
Well, You've been mean, typing probably. too much. Probably. And the thing <laughs> is, when it does run out of ink, I don't even know the insert to put in the pen. So. No, probably a standard inkwell, but. Probably so. We'll figure it out then. Yeah, definitely. So thank you, random lady. Thank you, random lady. From um, that was an Uber, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uber Eats delivery that I did, and she just brought the pen out. Oh no, 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 no! It was a Lyft. Right? Mm-hmm. It was a Lyft, Lyft ride to a hotel, right? Yeah. And she didn't really have a tip, so time for a tip. So it was awesome. My wife just walked in, and uh, she was gonna try some of the local brew we have here today. Some of the liquid libations. She's listening to us. Uh, Welcome to Bon Podcast. And uh, I'm so glad she wasn't here for the whole Kumbaya moment when I talked about her, because that would be kind of weird. Oh, oh bro, she'd be like citing that shit for years to come. Know, right? She'd be like, "You remember that one time?" Right. I'm like, "What'd you say? My you must have forgotten that one time on the podcast even, when." Right. My wife doesn't even listen to the podcast, so she's not. Oh, it's listen. all right. My wife doesn't either. I don't know. It's okay. I'm. Let's keep it that way. You yeah, we. Our wives talk to us enough. First of all, we came oh. to the agreement that we were going to hear each other. Over Instagram videos or the podcast, so that's why I haven't heard it. Whoa! And and also because my wife is busy recording her own podcast. Shout out to the Afro Latina podcast. There you go. <laughs> it's called the Unapologetically Afro Latino Podcast. Right, get it straight. Oh my goodness! All right, so New Year's goals. Uh, gave things. Uh, New Year's goals. Um, Shout out to Ace Cider, by the way. Ace, Ace Cider? Wife approved. Ace Cider. They make some of the best ciders. <laughs> I'm telling you. Well, both our wives are not necessarily beer people. Mm-hmm. So, Well, when, I, when you poured this and I tasted it, I was like, oh my goodness. So yeah. good. So right now we're drinking a Ace Cider's uh, Pineapple Cider. That's what it is. It is pineapple. so good. It is really good. It's so good. The it only one I like, like better than this that they make is probably the Joker. Mm, I don't remember that one. Oh, I'll, I, I'll get you some. <laughs> I'll get you some, son. That reminds me of this pineapple soda that my wife gets that she originally had in um in Miami. Um, what's the brand of that pineapple soda? Do you remember? No, not that one that your mom bought. The other one that comes in the glass bottle that you can oh, find in the game. Um. Tropical. 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 It's the Honduran banana. Oh, yeah. Oh, banana. Okay. Oh, shit. The taste is kind of similar. You fancy. We fancy. I don't know why I was doing that. And her parents also brought up this over this pineapple soda from Miami when they recently went to Miami. It reminds me of that, too. It's pretty good. But New Year's goals. New Year's goals. Um... What are your New Year's goals? Have you set any New Year's resolutions? Uh, no. New Year's resolutions? So, I don't do New Year's resolutions because I have a 100% commitment to continue to be who I am, regardless of the blowback from society. So, I'm a wee bit different mm-hmm. from most people, as I've told you and your wife and most people in my inner circle. I It takes a lot of effort for me on a day-to-day basis to pretend like I give a flying fuck. Like, I'm talking maximum effort 
for me to try and remember I'm supposed to sympathize and empathize and be a listener and, mm-hmm. you know, try and tell the difference between when someone's asking me for advice versus when they want me to just to listen. And it takes a lot out of me because I'm an extreme introvert and I just kind of would prefer to just do my thing and get it done. And if yeah. you can keep up, you can keep up. If not, that's fine too. I'll take care of it at the end of the day. Yeah. It takes a lot out of me to go, wait, I got to step back and exercise patience with other people and let them try and catch up to where I'm at. And mm-hmm. it takes a lot. So and one of the reasons I'm so heavily committed to being that way is because of my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, but on a, on a regular basis, on just for myself, I have to remember to check myself and, and remember to tell myself, look, sometimes it's okay to just flex and be like look i don't have time i don't give a crap i'm i've got my own concerns that i need to take care of and so my i guess if you want to call it a new year's commitment every year is to just remind myself in all of your acquiescing acquiescence acquiescing acquiescence thank you that remember that you got to put yourself first sometimes because if you're not squared away, then anything and everything you do is going to suffer to a significant degree. And, um, wifey. Um, that, that's always an important thing for me to just remind myself to be myself some days because otherwise I feel like I'm being stifled in a barrel and it feels like I'm just being suffocated. And if it gets to that point, oftentimes I end up lashing out and hurting somebody mm-hmm. that I really don't mean to. They're just there in front of me. And sometimes it's the wrong day. It's the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak, where I've just had it up to here above my head, you know, with other, everybody else's shit. Mm-hmm. And I just go, nope, that's it. You're the, wrong, you're the last motherfucker I'm tolerating. Get the fuck out of my face. Mm-hmm. So every year I'm like, look, you got to remember, be true to yourself when it comes to your, to, when it comes to like your, your boundaries, because if you're not, it's going to cause significant problems that are really hard to come back from. And I know this from experience, mm-hmm. from having not been true to myself, having acquiesced one too many times and hurt people that I cared about that that I would say are my friends that I would see on a regular basis on a day-to-day basis Mm -hmm. you know and then I hurt them and then all of a sudden they're no longer in my life and that invariably that lack of stability that that dramatic change constantly create inevitably creates a drawback on me and my daily routine yeah right and then and then I'm always worried about I'm like how can I make this better how can I fix this did I really do something wrong or did I just say, was it an accident? Did I do it on purpose? You get it, you get sidetracked with all this rebuild the bridge stuff and it slows me down and that's not acceptable. So in the first place I have to go, look, some things are just not going to be okay. And when they're not, you got to let people know because if you just give and give and give and give and give when people are taking, 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 eventually you're going to snap. And when I snap, I don't just burn bridges. I blow that shit up with C4. 
Mm-hmm. Like I, I have had brothers in the past that I don't talk to anymore. Yeah. Because one too many times they've let me down. And I just go, you know what? That's it. And I'm sorry, you know who you are out there if you hear me, if you hear me talking and you recognize my voice, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm sorry for that, but I can't have it. And that's not necessarily just on them, that's also on me and not being clear with them. But my point is to not let that continue to happen right. and to minimize how many times that happens over the course of my life. And so that's, a, that's my resolution every year is to just remember to be honest with myself about who I am mm-hmm. and about what I am and what I'm trying to do. Because if I'm not, then I just cause problems way down the line, whether it's a family event later in the year or, you know, it's a critical point in somebody else's life and they need me to do this, do them this one favor. Yeah. So I got to be real strict and tight with myself on my bases so mm-hmm. I can be there for people like I want to be. So I can be the man my wife wants me to be and the, be the man my wife deserves. Mm-hmm. So that's me. What about you, man? What's your goals? Well, I used to think that the New Year's resolution stuff was BS, but when you buy into the fact that it become like, okay, so one thing that's very important is like learning that sometimes you just you need a clean slate and you need to start off somewhere again. You need to grow again. And New Year's just gives you that, like the whole culture of New Year's mm-hmm. in our society just gives you like that 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 thing to just like start a clean slate again. Which like this year I've taken like kind of full for it. Mm-hmm. And then like, all right, this is a clean slate. I'm clearing my mind. I'm clearing my personal like docket of things that I'm like, oh, you messed up on, you didn't do. And clearing it out of my mind. I'm stop like I'm gonna stop being hard on myself because for people that are very inward thinking, like mm-hmm. your biggest your greatest strength and your biggest weakness is that thing where you hold yourself accountable. Mm. And for me, it's like sometimes I can hold myself too much accountable and beat myself up. So now I just take New Year's as a like as a time to just like clear myself and just start new. So like I'm staying like I'm staying more organized. Like I'm putting more of a value on things that matter and things that don't really matter. And this year. Things that don't matter, I'm making it matter. So, like, I grew up loving video games. This year, I told myself, man, I'm not going to play video games anymore. But the last time I did that, I was successful for, like, what, a year and a half? And then I started playing video games again. Because, like, that's just what I like to do. Some people like playing golf. I like playing video games. (laughs) So, now, this year, I'm taking something that I already do all the time. And I'm going to make it into something that I can potentially, like, profit off of. So, I'm going to start streaming video games. So, like, that's what I'm going to do this year. Like, I'm taking everything and I'm, like... I'm optimizing it for my life. Mm. Like I'm making everything matter. Like I'm making all my time matter by staying organized. And this year, like working out is a non-negotiable. Eating healthy is a non-negotiable. Do I eat unhealthy sometimes? Yes, I do. 
But the priority, the priority is to eat healthy. And working out is non-negotiable. Because I have this theory, which is like, you either start off eating healthy or you start off working out. And whichever one you start off with, you're going to end up at the other anyway. Because when you work out a lot, you figure out that when you eat unhealthy all the time, it makes you feel like that. And when you go to the gym, you can't get anything done. Mm-hmm. But when you eat healthy all the time and don't work out, you realize you have all this energy that you need to burn off and like this increase in hormones that you need to burn off. And the best way for you to do that, use that increase in energy is to work out. Mm. Right? Right. So you either end up where you need to be, whichever one you choose to do, you just make sure that you make a commitment with yourself to have a more healthy lifestyle. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that's what's a priority for me this year. Right. Is getting fit, getting active and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's the majority of my New Year's goals. I mean, as far as what I was saying, like taking everything in my life and optimizing it, one of those things is this podcast. So, like, we have goals for this podcast, too, which mm-hmm. are, like, to start raising more funds to be able to get us to that next level mm-hmm. and to start reaching more people and become more involved in like the community and start start like start starting actual conversations off air that turn into actual conversations on air as well right like that event that we right. were talking about on the 19th right 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 like that like at that would be American dope. theater event, right in Raleigh. So, so dope. you know, stuff like that. It's just yeah. like getting out here and I mean, I don't know how you feel about it. We can talk about it right now. Is that I don't wanna go in invading anybody else's space. Like I don't wanna go in and invading a space where people are already doing organizing work, but I wanna like not really report on it because we're not really reporters. But I want to support and sustain a conversation. And I want to create that own space for us and people that gravitate towards us to have conversations to contribute to stuff going on in the world. I mean, that that's my idea. What do you, how do you feel about that? I like that idea. Mm-hmm. I think coming at it from a more... from a experience or consumer based perspective is mm-hmm. much I think it's just a lot better and a lot more relatable than especially right now with the whole fake news and distrust in, in big media and general media in general or all media in general rather to sit here and say that we're going to be 100% fact checking all the time is it's impossible for anybody to do say they've 100% fact check but they can say within a any reporter worth their salt should be able to say within reason what they've reported is, to the best of their knowledge, the facts. And I was reading a story about this the other day um, that, like, uh, writing or literature teachers and specifically journalism teachers, teachers who are trying to train the next generation of reporters and writers and editors and things like that, are having trouble getting through their students and 
making them understand that the sh- the work that they're turning in isn't a, isn't is not supposed to be an opinion piece. Yeah. Right. They've been trained and trained and trained to analyze and then give their opinion, and now they're trying to tell them it's not about you. Right. It's not about your opinion. Your opinion is irrelevant to what your goal is. Your goal is to just give the facts to people and then let those people interpret the facts and cite where the facts are coming from. Is the insider source? Which side is it on? What is the potential bias here? That's what you're writing about. You're not writing an analysis piece for your own soapbox. Mm-hmm. And journalism teachers have a major problem with this, I suspect, probably across the country in the United States. Um, I can, just from the backlash alone that we've seen in the last three years in the media, it's it's got to be unbearable to be a journalism teacher. Yeah. Um, so I think coming at it from a experience, a user or an experience base perspective or lens is probably a lot better and a lot more relatable in general because people are going to go, oh, I get it. This is what they saw. This is what they felt rather than, oh, this is what happened. Well, no, it's not because I was there too. And that's not what happened. Or this person that I trust said that that's not what happened. We don't want to drum up any more of that animosity. There's enough of that going on already. Yeah. And then, and that ended up, that nature in and of itself is going to get cranked up to like 13 coming into this election year. So we don't need to be doing any of that. I don't think. I think it, it's we're better off just giving our listeners our perspective. Yeah. And if you guys agree or disagree, let us know. I mean, we're always open to interpretation and adjusting our views. I'm certainly not God. Yet. <laughs> I mean, we have this uh, this plan that I gave you the other day. You know, that may be part of the plan. You know? mm-hmm. We'll talk to you guys about that later. Yeah, we'll, we'll get more into that a little bit. That's probably a 2021 goal. Okay. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. Um, but yeah, man. I mean... That's cool. Uh, anything else you like that? I'm getting things on New Year's goals, any goals, stuff like that. We're getting into writing. I think the advice I would give, my New Year's advice to give to everybody mm-hmm. is that you gotta, <laughs> like I said earlier, you gotta really be honest with yourself. Don't yeah. set yourself a goal you can't attain. Definitely. Set yourself like if you want a long term goal, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But remember that that's the long-term goal. That's not going to happen overnight. That's not going to happen in three months. It's not going to happen in six months. That's a long-term goal for a reason, people. If you're going to set a long-term goal, give yourself a couple of smaller goals that will help build towards that. And those are what you go after first in the beginning of the year. I want to counter your argument or your advice. Because I've been listening to a lot of David Goggins lately. Mm-hmm. For anybody that's listening to David Goggins. You probably know which direction I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. When I say that sometimes you have to set a goal that you can attain because you probably just need to attain that thing. That you can or cannot? Cannot. So because you're saying you, you have to set a mile marker so far out that you can't catch it. That is going to break you. You know it's going to break you. And you know, it's right. gonna, you know that you're probably not going to be able to do it so that when you do it, you realize just how able you are to do it. I know that sounds like a total, like, 
that sounds totally contradictory, but I mean, it's true. I mean, I've been in situations where I've set a goal for myself or I've set out to do something that I think I couldn't attain and it happens and mm-hmm. it's easy. Yeah, well, I, I get what you're saying on that. A yeah. lot of people, and this is true for, I said a lot of people, I'm going to say most people. Mm-hmm. Most people only give about 40%, 50% of their effort. Mm-hmm. If you're somebody who has really good work ethic and you're committed to taking a, eating a lot of shit and just slogging through, you're probably putting in about 60%, 70% of your effort. Oh, you sound a lot like Eric Thomas now. Do you know who that is? No. Oh, okay. okay. Um, but point being, everybody's got a little bit more to give. And I know that mm-hmm. for a fact because I've pushed people and broken people. I've been mentor. I've been the mentor. I've been the teacher. And I've pushed people past their limits before, the limits that they, hard limits that they set for themselves. They say they can't get past. They say that's the limit. They, they, that's the make or break point, and I push them past it. I've done that, and I've seen what people look like on the other side when they realize that they've got more to give. Right. Now, all of a sudden, that bar has moved. Right. All of a sudden, they realize they're on that beach, and that line they drew in the sand can be moved. And they move it, and then they move it again. And they move it again, and they move it again, and again, and again. They keep going forward. And part of that process is what I call exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very commonly used in like heavy lifting and, and max out days and things like that for weight training. But your exhaustion sets, that kind of thing. Exhaust yourself to the point where you do where you're going to break and find out if you have any more to give. Mm-hmm. And that can be a dicey choice. Sometimes people have none. I've, mm-hmm. I've run into a couple of people who just break and they're like, that's it. They don't mm-hmm. have any more, any more put out. And, that's, and that happens. But then you know, right? Then you know where your mm-hmm. limit is. Then you know where your lines are. And that in and of itself is a reward. Because right. that lets you know how much you can give or take in any environment you go into. Whether it's your workspace, your personal life, your family life, etc. But then you are also right in them is there are other people who, who are only putting in half of what they can put out, you know? And so you push them past the breaking limit, and all of a sudden, that goal that seemed so far out in the horizon, it was unattainable, is now within reach. Right. And that's very, that's very common, too. Um, it's, really, it's really a lot about your mental fortitude and about your, your perseverance, your ability to knuckle down in your head and keep yourself in check and go, I don't care how much it hurts. It doesn't hurt more than I want it. Right. And, you know, I'll tell everybody about David Goggins up and down the board, as well as people like Cameron Haynes, you know, yeah. who was like David Goggins, like running buddy now. <laughs> yeah. These guys are crazy. They get up in the morning and they go, hey, you want to do a marathon? They go, man, let's do like three. And they run like three marathons in the morning for a warm-up. Yeah. These guys are monsters. Um, and they, they're they're shining examples of what you can be. Right. But they've also been through some extreme pressures and a very niche existence. Yeah, I mean... I, I mean, it's a miracle world, Goggins isn't dead yet. Right, but when I look at the world, we're probably going to need more people like that uh-huh. coming up soon, you know, and transitioning into the next thing we're talking about. Like, I feel like that's a common thread. Not only why this method of storytelling is so 
like prevalent. Not just because it's not just a new method and a way of telling a story. Mm-hmm. It's kind of how we process through situations in our life naturally. Like naturally, the call of a hero, the first thing he does is decline the freaking offer. That's right. the way that the hero's journey works, according to Joseph Campbell. Like the hero technically is the third thing. But... Well, yeah. Well, I mean, along the process, the hero right. gets the call and then he denies it. That's right. Keep yeah. going. I hit the version. So I feel like what happens on New Year's is we have this moment where we feel like this hero. And then we set these goals for ourselves because we approach something and we are like, this needs to change. And I feel like we have this culture of what happens is we set these goals and then we don't accomplish them. So then we put ourselves down for it and we deny that we even had these goals in the first place or... Like you said, we set these goals that we think are not attainable and we deny or other people deny the fact that we can even do it. I feel like that's that initial part of storytelling in the hero's journey that's set by Joseph Campbell, which, by the way, is like one of the most... Like, I've been trying to study this uh, method of creating a hero and storytelling because first of all, I feel like that's probably the one thing that I've had missing from my characterization for a lot of heroes and novels that I've tried to create. Um, what so later on we'll actually be talking about the writing process so I'll touch on this a little later on so let's let's put a pin in that right there. And we'll come to that later. But, um, yeah, so I've been trying to study this because I felt like it's something that I've struggled with incorporating in my writing. And I felt like it's something we should just touch on because um, it it's... So, basically what I've been talking about is, like, the hero's journey. So, yeah, you want to you follow that. Go back and listen to it. There we go. All right, we're back. So I'm I'm not going to talk about that right now, but what I'm going to say is that I I did realize that that's something that I was not incorporating in my writing, so I've been kind of studying it. And one reason why I've been studying is because I've been like analyzing a lot of films and TV shows and books that I'm reading, and I've been like, yo, this is like. The thread that holds every great story together is like the hero's journey. Right. And I, which is one of the reasons why when we had our podcast, re, the most recent one, we're talking about Star Wars, which is why I feel like the whole characterization is kind of um, misunderstood of a lot of characters in the in the sequel trilogy, because I just feel like. Um, Give yourself yeah. some slack in the cord. That oh, way the okay. mic doesn't sway. Oh, right. Keep it over the thing, though, because you don't want it to just... Right. There you go. It's perfect. So that, I, that's why I felt like... um. That's why I felt like it was kind of misunderstood. 
Because building on all three of those movies, I feel like a lot of things, storytelling wise, mm-hmm. were done really right. Um, I think that second movie just kind of threw the whole hero's journey straight out the window. And they were like, I don't know. One of the biggest How do you critiques, get through freshman year of high school? One of the biggest You survive. Of, right, but one of the biggest critiques about Luke was that he wasn't like this big, like he was old and crotchety and angry. <laughs> like, that's, that's right. him. That's his cyclical thing. Like, they didn't show him being great in right. doing the Jedi school. They showed, they skipped a cycle of the hero's journey with him after his initial one that you saw in the original trilogy. And now he's on a different one. And you get to see that. And it's beautiful. Yeah, I feel like they skipped the whole out. road back. What do you mean? So, like, in the... The in, whole road... I mean, yeah, that's they skipped, not a problem. No, I'm saying, like, that's what, mm-hmm. that's what they kind of threw in piecemeal in the final yeah. trilogy that we just had. They threw in as, like, retconning it, basically. Like... When explaining the fall of Kylo to to the dark side and how Luke failed and Luke's mm-hmm. monologue as a failure as a Jedi Master and da da da, which is why he won't train Rey and da da da. I mean they, that was addressed they in the second you, one. That wasn't that That's what I'm saying. They give you snippets of it throughout the trilogy though. Mm-hmm. Even in the third one, there's like the retcon of Padme and or not Padme, freaking Leia and training Leia. Mm-hmm. And I'm like you're you're skipping the I mean, whole kind of reward, knew. the road back, and the resurrection. Okay, so you gonna you gonna tell me that when Leia used that force thing, you didn't kind of know in the back of your mind? Oh, she did train with Luke. I knew that. I know that. Thing. Yes, but I'm an avid comic reader, mm-hmm. and I've and I understand that just because somebody who spent a lot of money decided something's not part of the story does not make it so. Yeah, but at the same time, you gotta realize that like cinema doesn't have four to five hours. To no, I get that, but I'm saying specifically for Luke though, they just kind of throw out the whole road back, which is why Luke's car- Luke Skywalker got such a bad mm-hmm. image in the last trilogy as the crotchety old man who ran away from his destiny. But that's a okay. So like, yes, so I feel you. in the first trilogy. You know, he, he comes once, into power okay. and prominence, once he goes through the ordeal, he conquers, he redeems Anakin, or Darth Vader, he redeems his father, and then you have the reward, they destroy the Death Star, peace is restored, and then they skip the whole road back where the Empire comes back again, right? And they skip the whole Luke rebuilding the Jedi Order, they skip him training young ones and Padawans, they skip him knighting the first knight, they skip... Him training Kylo, you just get little flashback images of it that doesn't. It's not compelling. Mm-hmm. It's just not. It's just like oh, so that happened. Cool. Hour later, oh here's another flashback. Thirty minutes later, oh here's another flashback. Second movie, oh here's like a ten minute flashback. And yes, you shouldn't necessarily write your scripts in cinema to, for dummies. Like you should expect your your. Consumers to be somewhat intelligent, especially right. if they're semi fans or hardcore fans. Okay, fine. But what I think, but you but fucked it up. But <laughs> once you make a couple of things, once you put a couple of truths down on the table, then I feel like you have no choice but to 
understand how the decisions were made and not you don't have to agree with it is what I'm saying but what I have what you I feel like okay what I get from it is that the way it was executed once you lay everything out, out on the table that is a truth mm-hmm. it was handled very well it was handled well so once you okay once you put down on the table that Star Wars has created a culture of leaving a large chunk of history between not only different movies in its trilogies, but in between its trilogies, then you have no choice but to be like, okay, we kind of expected to get this huge time jump between the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy. So it's not really uncommon. Then, when you also take the truth that before Disney bought Star Wars, Emperor Palpatine was always alive after the original trilogy. Mm -hmm. And that's what they intended to do the whole time, and that's what they did. So once you come to grips with that, you come to grips with the fact that even though Luke destroyed, destroyed, air quotes, the Empire at the end of the original trilogy... Mm -hmm. It was never going to be destroyed, which is the reason why the First Order rose up. Because that was always the plan in the first place. Right. Because it was laid out that Palpatine meticulously planned everything that he did. And he had a plan for when the Empire fell. And they're just telling the story of what that plan was. Right. But from a specific point of view. Okay. So So then once you tell yourself all that and you look at the plot line of the movie... And then you see the point of view that it's coming from. It was actually executed pretty fucking well to me. Like, the only thing, and I'm trying to think about it right now, because once I honestly look in my mind and I equally weigh to what's appropriate for an audience that is heavily involved in the lore and that just flotates to Star Wars because it's another science fiction space opera. And then once you also include what's marketable to what the hardcore fan base was like, and then once you include like the plot line and does it fit the hero's journey and are these characters done justice? Like once you fit all that, the only thing that we were talking about the other day that I really don't appreciate was how they handled Rose's character. That's it. That's the only thing that I have, which is kind of like, because eh. I told you they missed a point to make her actually mean something because mm-hmm. they could have had that relationship between her and her sister that made her sister's death more meaningful. Right. But yet we're just supposed to care about this character. Dying. And okay, again, this is my mind kicking in where... If you had that scene with her clutching that necklace and then you saw Rose clutching her necklace, then you kind of know how important it is. So they don't really need to focus on the relationship. But No, nah, but they do because otherwise that scene do. is a throwaway scene. Okay. Let's let's take right. this out of something that we that we have. But then, hang on. But hang then, on. No, you're, the argument you're, you're for getting that, bogged down in the it. The argument for that you're is... You're getting bogged down in the story. Until Solo came out, you didn't really know 
you didn't really know a lot, a lot. Like, until Solo comes out, you don't really understand why Kylo Ren became Kylo Ren. Because the Solo Star Wars story movie kind of tells you that. It kind of... Okay, hang on. You, you just skip. So... This how is what about, I'm, how did I skip this? this is what I'm saying. You're you're getting bogged down yeah. in the story that you're familiar and connected with, and what we're talking about is writing, in general. So okay, let's yeah. take that. Constru- so let's take So that, let's take the construct the box, out of Star Wars. Put it in the box and throw it away for another day. No, no, no. We're we'll just gonna pull it up Wars. out of Star Wars. We're gonna stop talking about Star Wars. Right. You have a five character circle. Mm-hmm. You have them. All of them are main protagonists. And you're trying to give them all a fair debut in five hours. You're going to have a love triangle between three of them while balancing the fact that there is a call from an omnipotent force in the universe that draws people to one side or another. And then you're going to randomly throw in two other people, two sisters, who are supposed to have a relationship while somehow edifying the importance of a love triangle. How do you balance... Where's the love triangle? So, in Star Wars, it's Finn, Poe, and Rey. Okay. Which then became Rey, Finn, and Kylo. Because Poe doesn't love Rey. It was, like, kind of sort of, like, thrown in there as, like, a maybe thing in the first movie, and then it went way sideways, and then it became a Kylo thing. So maybe you talk about the love square? Yeah, kind of, but okay. then there's also like the Finn Rose thing, which is like mm-hmm. another like so then you have Rose, Finn, and Ray. So and like, it's just it was a whole lot of extra shit that didn't need to be there, which is my point. We're pulling it up out no, of Star Wars. It's not that point, because the point is you have a character who's attached to everybody he comes in contact with and connects with. That's right. That one and that's great, but he's because not the main protagonist. Thinks, oh, but he he's not the main protagonist. It's not his story. Mm. He's the backup. He's the second or the third. Okay, he's not the main protagonist. He's one of five central protagonists, but he's not the main protagonist. He's like Finn is not the main protagonist. Ray is. So if you're you have your your first lead who is the main protagonist, she's the one the story is centered around and her interactions with everybody. But then you have a second protagonist who happens to be male who then has like bearing and as you would say a, a impact through the force on all these other characters or through the through the connections they have they have an impact on all these other characters during the story even then that still doesn't make them the main protagonist that just means they're a very influential character in your story and in the star wars universe finn did get a decent amount of of screen time and he got his his signing off if you will but that whole rose thing was entirely that rose thing was just poorly executed in the star wars universe but when you take it out of the universe right and you just say this is a general story you have a female lead two male leads and then you have these two sisters on the side one of the sisters is semi-important to one of the secondary male leads and then you want to 
shift that focus from her relationship to the male lead to her relationship with her sister at the end, right? To impact why it's important to, to show the humanity, right? To shift that, you have to give time, whether it's in a book or a cinematic universe, you have to give time for that relationship to be shown for people to relate to it. Yeah, there's always like, oh, everybody has a sister. Or everybody knows somebody that they think is like their sister or their their sibling that they, if they lost, they would feel. But it's not the same as when you develop it. Yeah. And when you have a, a an opera, it's mm-hmm. all about conveying emotion. I would say the one lasting relationship in Star Wars that did happen was the relationship between Leia and Han. And that was built all the way from episode one. I just felt like it was a crappy place. Center the mic up. I just felt like that was a crappy place to introduce a relationship. With Leia and Han? The, no, no, no. With Rose and Finn. Oh, yeah. In, I didn't think it was like, necessary. The latter third of the second movie. Mm-hmm. Because that's just... Right, and then in the third movie, it just shifted straight back. You needed more time. Right. It was like... They just felt like... That's why I said her character was like... "Mm." And... One thing... That this movie... Did was... That it always did... Is it always introduced... One main hero, but... Of like secondary lesser heroes, but their whole story it focuses on throughout. So I don't think it was an issue with the with the different ways that they dealt with all the main characters in their arcs in in heroism. Um, because there was always the, there was always this triangle between Luke Han and Leia, the same thing I would say is a thing between the love square, which is... <laughs> the which love is, square. Which is... <laughs> right. I can't. That's so funny a term. But then you gotta think That's that... That's gonna be a title of a poem. The law, of, the law of averages is like when they focused on that... Okay, but the law of averages doesn't it's exist like in a fictional universe. like half the characters in the original trilogy were force sensitive so like we only got one and the reason why well Poe is force sensitive Finn is too I'm sorry I meant Finn not Poe Poe is not force sensitive and I think they handled that so well because they didn't really tell you but they showed you dude you were bitching about it not two weeks ago what are you talking about yeah I was have you come around the bandwagon no, the thing is, you're mad because something didn't happen because you totally wanted it to happen. But then, as a writer, you appreciate that there's this like mystic cloud okay. in front of that Fair. where, like, you know, yeah, we show. There's a thing in writing where you show, don't tell. Right. And they did a very good job of that. Yeah, they it's a, it's you. a it's a li- it's expressing the exposition versus mm-hmm. having a fucking monologue for 15 minutes. Exactly. Which. A 15-minute monologue mm-hmm. will kill anything, whether it's Star Wars, mm-hmm. whether it's a, a TV show, well, in, in or whether it's a fucking anime. Right. 15 in, minutes of exposition switches people off. Exactly. Which, it's like 15 minutes of going through, like, 
Interestingly, though, in books, it's not that bad. Why people... Well, in no, books, it's in easier books, to get away with. Like, like when the main protagonist well, is in the final confrontation with his mm-hmm. with his antagonist or her antagonist, whatever. Explaining you fight. have yeah the battle of wills that ensues, right? And they're supposed yeah. to be somewhat evenly matched, and it's about the willpower of each and each one of them gets like an eight page fucking monologue to explain to the reader why they're doing what they're doing if. For somehow you missed it in the first like whatever number of books, yeah. right? It's the wrap up. It's the I don't care. This is my position. Right. And in books, it's somewhat more amicable, I guess, because there's so much detail information in books that to create the scene in the reader's head to create the character designs. Well, but at the but, same time, if you look at the way it's conveyed in that, I don't know, eight page description of that one event Mm -hmm. it's more focused on what happened and why than the narrator like the narrative voice Mm -hmm. explaining to you why it happens Mm -hmm. so that's what that's what as writers you you say show don't tell Mm -hmm. it's like we don't want the narrative voice explaining this is why this is happening or whatever but what you do want is you you do want you showing it right because actions speak louder than words and having the characters tell it to each other like that's not an issue right so when the so when the protagonist in in any story is you don't laying out their principles you don't want your narrative voice reporting Mm. that's That's a good way to put it yeah that's basically yeah so when you have your main protagonist laying out their rules and regulations for their their party on this heroic quest. You know, we're not going to do this. We are going to do this. We're not going this way because of this. We're not going to treat these people this way because of this, right? They can say that all they want, but what readers, what consumers want is to see the actions, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you say it in one page, 10 pages later when it becomes an issue, you want to see your main protagonist confront their companion and go, you don't get to do this. If you're gonna be on this on this path, this yeah. is my line in the in the ground. If you cross it, you're crossing me. You're supposed yeah. to be with me. So what is it? They want to see that because they want that embodiment and and that powerful stance taken to convey the importance. Right, right? and people don't necessarily understand that as consumers unless they're writers themselves but that's really what that is they want people to show it don't tell it mm-hmm. that's what you want from your politicians too but you know mm-hmm. win some you lose some <laughs> well it also makes you appreciate a character a little bit more when you're able to pick on when a small little detail is able to tell you so much about a person's <laughs> like how they are like it's just their character Mm. then that makes your reader appreciate that character so much more than the narrative voice just okay sidebar you like keep leaning away from the mic are you trying to make eye contact like yeah because the mic is just kind of weird in the way okay so bend it back and lower it and then tilt it up bend it back lower it right right so bring it out from you bring it out like this no 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 towards me towards you now spin the mic Mm-hmm. Bring the arm down a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Not that much. Oh. There you go. 
Yep. There Sounds you go. Good. Yeah, a little bit better. Yeah, because it keeps fading the audio in and out. So. Mic I just don't want listeners to feel like they're going through like dead spots and be fiddling with their phones and oh, shit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's just cam tilting no, no, to the no. ends of the earth. <laughs> anyway, so the main point that we're trying to talk about is like different motifs and techniques for writing right now. Mm-hmm. But that all that being said, there's like a, a lot of like general things that we experience, we listen to, and we respond to that a lot of people don't realize are just generic things, generic basic elements you have to have for a story, right? So things like the protagonist, the person you want to be taking action, the person Mm -hmm. who's pursuing good action, the antagonist, the person who's pursuing bad action or negative action, right? Right. And their respective parties, and you have leads, backups, secondary leads, things like that. Ugh. But all of that falls under these massive umbrella terms called motifs or genres. Are you doing a noir story? Are you watching a Western, a cult classic? Are you watching a medieval or a time or a period piece? That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of these overlap significantly in um, the animated world, right? So you can have stuff that's Got yeah, elements of noir, elements of a western, elements of uh, sci-fi in it, right? Mm. Because in the animated world, not a live-action world, in the animated world, everything is drawn, everything is created in some digital capacity or another. So it doesn't matter how big or how small it is; you can scale it, yeah. and you can have characters with purple hair, green hair, white hair, orange hair, whatever hair. You can have them dress however they, however you want them to. You don't have to worry about arguing with somebody about whether or not their costume is acceptable or not. That kind of thing. Which is what segues into anime. So the reason I want to talk about anime is for the reasons I just listed. And also for the main reason that a lot of people don't understand why people in the West are so obsessed with anime. I got you. You got it? Okay. Anime is a world of pure freedom. There is no constraint for specific casting roles. You don't have to find the actor or actress with the chops to make the role who has the physical look of the role that you want, right? And you don't have to spend a huge amount of money on costume design and makeup artists and grips and mics and da-da-da-da. You're spending your money instead on story writers, uh, good voice actors. Good voice actors, as well as good, good artists. People who can draw, people who can create an image through detail in their mind, and then and then put it on paper, put it on a digital format. And the reason anime is so amazing to me is that it just it's pure freedom. There's no limitation on it. If you God forbid, if you want to do the whole pervy lolly thing, you can do it. It's not my particular cup of tea. But if you're like a 13-year-old boy, that lolly harem anime is going to make more sense to you than if you're an adult who's going to want to watch a bunch of people get hacked and slashed to pieces in the middle of a political sci-fi futuristic cybernetic world. 
What is Lolly like? Halfway porn? So Lolly is basically okay. So <laughs> terminology and definition time, folks. <laughs> Bring it up. Man. Lolly is not an anime head. Sorry, matter. yeah. So Nimbus is not so much an anime head as I am. Mm-hmm. Um, a Lolly is a is a character type specifically reserved for like a young, clearly minor, underage character. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a little sister or a little brother. The lolly it tends to be the love interest who's underage, mm-hmm. usually matched up with a love interest who's just under like who's like sixteen or seventeen, and the lolly tends to be written as relatively the same age, but is drawn completely childlike. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of contention about whether or not that should be a thing or not, but that's why it's all fiction people. That's all I'm going to say on it. I'm not going to get into that whole... That's a whole diluge. You could have a four-hour conversation on that right. element alone. Um, then you have various other things. Like Sundare, which is basically the bitchy female archetype. Who's like has an inferiority complex. Who's always overcompensating and being a, an asshole to the main mm-hmm. character. Um, there's Yandare, which is... Basically, opposite of Sundare, um, from my understanding. Like a bitchy man. No, Yandare would be like super friendly, super charismatic, super helpful to the to a fault, like, uh, sort of like embarrassed princess type, who's like, give, 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 instead of like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, mm-hmm. right? So soft ass versus a hard ass, mm-hmm. right? A pushover versus a hard ass. And then, so that's like different character archetypes, just like you have different stereotypes in westernized history, like the sapphire, the gigolo, the um, the queen, the sissy, or um, the pickaninny from old racist minstrel cartoons. Um, these kinds of things that are that end up becoming motifs and character archetypes like Medea would be considered a sapphire archetype. Mm. Strong alpha female who's not taking shit from anybody, who's always perceived in a negative way despite being a protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, despite being the character everybody's rooting for. They're rambunctious, loud, annoying, always bucking the rope, if you will, or bucking the yoke of society. To do what's right. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget that scene. With the hot grits. Oh my god. Nimbus! Oh my god. So, it's one of the original Tyler Perry Medea films. Um, dealing oh, with the like, abusive... Just grits. <laughs> yeah, just make him some hot grits. And oh, yeah. the, the daughter, the niece, or the granddaughter, the grandnephew, or whatever, doesn't understand the, the message. And right. she's like, just make us some hot grits. And then the end of the movie comes and he's like... The abusive boyfriend or husband's power tripping in front of it, all the all the women in the kitchen, and they're like, Mindy's like, nope, we're gonna let them have their time. We're gonna let them sort this out. This is their problem. They exit, and on her way out, Mindy's like, just make them some hot grits. <laughs> so she's making them some hot grits, and he's power tripping, and then she throws the hot grits on her and beats his ass with a fucking frying pan. It's hilarious. I'll never forget that scene. That scene is like one of my favorite scenes ever. Anyways. 
So you have all these different archetypes in anime and that get overlapped in different tropes and stuff like that. And point being, you can create whatever kind of character you want, mm-hmm. right? It's significantly easier to create a fantasy world of vampires versus werewolves in anime than it is in real life, in live action filming, right? right. In particular, one of my favorite animated series, which you're probably somewhat familiar with, is the Miyazaki series. Pardon me. Not at all Things like Spirited Way, Princess Mononoke, Howl's Moving Castle. These are all movies that Miyazaki wrote and created through and worked with in a, in a specific studio called Studio Ghibli. And he, I don't think Sailor Moon's Miyazaki. Um, no. No. When you watch them, you understand. Um, Up on Poppy Hill is probably one of his greatest films ever. Although people think uh, Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind is probably his greatest film ever. But I would dare to say Princess Mononoke or um, Up on Poppy Hill are probably his two best films. Mm-hmm. Anyways, we'll we'll have a whole night and I'll, I'll show them to you. They're great, great movies. Anyways, in the less developed... Uh, story worlds of like TV show anime where you go through arcs and things like that like Naruto which is considered uh, shonen mm-hmm. which is basically a long episodic film over, or plot over a long series with a bunch of filler shit um, designed to develop entire worlds mm-hmm. you have a ton of different character types and you have a ton of different you have a lot more flexibility in time mm-hmm. to tell it all like Can you name me a TV show that has a thousand episodes? Like a Western traditional TV live action that has a thousand episodes in it. I can think of two. Power Rangers. Rangers. Give me another one. Power Rangers. (laughs) Okay. So, (laughs) yeah, Power Rangers. Um, I can think of three. Live action. So CSI, if you combine all the different branches of CSI, oh, we probably have. Oh, we can include those. Yeah. Oh. Like different franchises. Like. See, I'm I'm sitting here thinking like fantasy science fiction. No, not just fantasy science, but oh, any general okay. Western film, because we're just talking about an, you're comparing and contrasting like the series. longevity of series. So in anime, I think the longest running one is probably Detective Conan, which mm-hmm. is. I can check that right now. Hang on. Detective Conan is one of the longest running ones ever. I'd have to say Law and Order is probably... Law and Order is probably really close. Um, CSI. You consider Star Trek a Western? Like a Western creation? Yeah. Oh, okay. I got you. Sorry. I was thinking the genre. Um, I would have said, like, Doctor Who, but that's not... Mm, technically, it is a Western. It's got... It's on, like, series in 14 now or 15. It's pretty mm. close. Um, so, things like Jag... Not familiar with I am. you are okay. Well, things like Jag, 
CSI, if you combine everything from Boston to Miami to LA, whatever. NSKIS will be another good one at taking a stab at it. Um, the Simpsons would be another good one to take a stab at it, um, although it's not live action. Um, right, you said live action. Mm-hmm. Anyways, point being, the longevity comes from the art form because you can create new characters, you can recast voice actors, you can develop elements and motifs over long periods of time, and because the budget is so much lower, you have more flexibility. Inevitably, what has happened, though, is that the consumer base has changed and grown over time, and so they want more action and, and fewer episodes, basically went from having you have typically two different splits in anime you know super long shonen series like one piece naruto uh things like that detective conan versus uh series that are much shorter usually only two to three seasons which means they're about 26 episodes versus uh, i don't know 13 so it's like 39 or 42 episodes um And so there's a lot. The main point is that in a shorter series, you're accelerating your you're accelerating your character development, right? So One Piece, which is one of the longest running shonens, which takes forever to develop characters because there's so many of them and there's so many enemies that don't mean anything, right? Is one thousand one hundred twenty nine videos long and it's still going. Each episode is about 30 minutes. Plus, there's movies. Right, because each episode is one piece. Jesus Christ. Go kill yourself. <laughs> kill yourself, Nemus. Jesus. God, that was terrible. Sorry. I uh, thought I'm more valuable. That was terrible. Um, and so in a, in a short series, let's say it's two seasons long, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you have 26 episodes. I've watched enough anime to be able to tell you almost for certain which episodes you could skip. Right. right? So in the first season, you could probably skip episode eight. It's usually a bridge episode in the series. <coughs> Bless you. Mm -hmm that really, inevitably, you don't actually have to watch because it has no bearing. It's usually the episode after a massive ordeal or a character growth or development where they accomplish something that they've been struggling to accomplish for seven episodes, mm -hmm. whether it's finally mastering the final technique of their practice or their martial or whatever, or finally overcoming uh, the enemy that they were thought that they were originally pursuing and then discovering that that person was just a pawn. Episode 8 in a 12, 13 episode series is typically like the rest and recovery episode where you get a lot of exposition for the support characters, which inevitably you really don't need in a short series because all you care about is like the growth of the protagonist because it's a short series. Mm -hmm. um, you could probably skip that episode and still understand where the season's going to end up at, right? And so you basically you're having you basically have like one one hero step one step in the hero's journey, right? Per episode, 
within like a filler episode thrown in there for exposition that really is like just boring as shit. But inevitably, it's still totally awesome because you get what you want out of it and then you can move on to a totally new story and you don't get burnt out on it like a lot of Western TV shows. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't get the constant trope of, oh, who's going to die at the end of this season? Yeah. Ooh, look at this trailer. Do you know who's going to die? Right. It could be your favorite person. Oh, everybody loved them too much. We're going to write them back into the script in two seasons. You don't have any of that in anime. Right. Um, I need something in between One Piece and Sword Art Online. Okay, so, so this Art is Online where... was freaking... It was it's up to like 100 so episodes now. Fast. It's up to 100 episodes now. Yeah, but it moves so fast. You gotta go back and watch it. It didn't move that fast. It does move very fast. No, dude. It doesn't. It does. It doesn't. Because it seems like this dude, in the beginning... You get all the exposition in the first episode. He freaking levels up. You get all the exposition in the first episode. Yeah, man. He's just like, he gets to become a badass in two episodes. No, he was already a badass in the first episode because he was a beta tester. And he was able to keep all of his unlocks. Because it ported his direct knowledge into the game. See... Can't keep up. Dude, it's the same thing you do on every fucking Call of Duty or Battlefield. If you're in the beta test, you know exactly what's good, what's not good before anybody else. Right. Even if they don't, even when they don't let you keep your upgrade, you know, okay, this is what works for me. I'm gonna run around. I know what the sight lines are on the first maps that are gonna come out for release. I know where the good spots to camp out are. I know where to be, where not to be. I know where the good choke points are for traps. That's all it is, and you get all of that explained to you in the first episode. See, it moves too fast. Oh my god. I need to drop in like two, three episodes. I Jesus need, Christ. I need, I need some. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So that's why for me it seems like it moves too fast. Because, like, mm. you exactly get all the exposition in the first episode, all of it. You don't need any more. That's kind of bad. I mean, so much to learn. So much to learn. Okay, so I'm going to give you my top 10 anime list, which is going to be highly controversial, but I'm going to give them to you. Okay. If listeners out there want to contest me on this, you are welcome to, but you're probably wrong. It's okay. Ugh, top 10 list. Ghost in the Shell. Starting, Love that movie. starting at the top. Ghost in the Shell, I don't care what you say, Ghost in the Shell is probably the number one anime of all time. I love that movie. Um, so is, the, is it a show? or is it Yeah, it's an anime. Movie? It was originally an anime that was then, well, it's originally a manga that I believe was adapted to anime and then adapted to a movie with Scarlett Johansson. And then there's no, also I'm a Ghost in the, the Shell. Original. The anime? The animated the movie? The original animated movie, yeah. Yeah. So there's so it was originally adapted as a anime series, and then they developed three movies called Arise, which basically explain major Koto's uh, um, backstory and how she became the first fully cybernetic human. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have Ghost in the Shell, then probably I would say Full Metal Alchemist. Mm-hmm. 
It's a little fillery, but because it's so long, it has it does actually tie ninety percent of the filler back in to the story. So you have Full Metal Alchemist, and then you also have Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, which is like an alternate universe side of things, which is also pretty good. I'm gonna put them together. Um, then I would say Samurai Shampoo. I've already seen two of the top ten. You gotta go back and watch them now, though. Trust me. Then I would say Psychopath. Psychopath is really good. Oh my god. Psychopath followed up. Let's see. Man. Um, now we get into nitty gritty. Well, you know what? I'm going to put Psychopaths down. I'm going to put Sword Art Online. Where I had Psychopaths. So, one, two, three. Sword Art Online is number four. Psychopaths is number five. You would really love Psychopaths just for the political philosophy in it. Um, it it's a really, really good contradictory situation in there. Let's see. What's next? I'm trying to do this off the top of my head because I want it to be as genuine as possible. I'm trying to keep it just series. Um, Bleach would be my next one. Which bro, is Bleach is up to like everybody was on Bleach in high school, bro. Yeah, so, so Bleach is up to three hundred and sixty-six. Um, that train running a little slower than most of them. Well, I think they cut it off at some point. Bleach oh, okay. is really good. Then I would probably say Fairy Tale at number seven. Only because it's so fillery. Fairy Tale's got almost as much filler as Naruto. But the characters in the world are much. They're simpler, but they're much more well balanced than mm-hmm. in something like Naruto, where it's such a linear progression. Fairy tale has a lot of ups and downs because it's a magic-based universe where your mental state drastically affects what you can or can't do. Um, which I think is really important. Oh, wait a minute. Ah! How did I forget about that? I'm sorry. I gotta knock both of those down one. I gotta knock all three of those down. Okay. How did I forget that? So the other series is pro- is gonna be um, is gonna be uh, Spice and Wolf. So Spice and Wolf is gonna be number five. Spice and Wolf, then Psychopaths, 
Lynn Bleach at number seven. And Fairy Tale at number eight. Fuck. No. Season eight tanked the entire point of Game of Thrones. Sorry. Not happening. Not going down. Um. Yeah, Spice and Wolf is probably one of the best. And I'd say, nope, I forgot about another one. I gotta knock them all down again. Shit. Sorry, guys. So after Spice and Wolf, I would put Cowboy Bebop. Sounds like some Western. Never mind. So, Sword Art Online gets knocked down one. So after Samurai Shampoo, you get Cowboy Bebop. Some of the characters fall flat in Cowboy Bebop. Not all of them. Yeah, no. Yeah, SAO at number five. Spice and Wolf. Number six, Psychopaths. At seven, Bleach at eight. And then I'd probably go with some classic um, One Punch Man would definitely be like number nine. Well, no, One Punch Man. I don't know. Um, So you have Code Geass. Code Geass. If you're talking Lelouch. Yeah. I'd put that above Psychopaths. So. Number. So you have Spice and Wolf at number six. Number seven is going to be Code Geass. Then you've got Psychopaths. Then I would put the Fate Stay Night. Then I would put Fate Stay Night. Which is in and of itself a whole series. But if we're just talking like the standard Fate Stay Night. And then probably One Punch Man. Why One Punch Man solo? Um, One Punch Man is solo because of the flatness of... The main character. It's meant to be written as such a basic concept that everybody can relate to it and having that dream of using your raw willpower to overcome Mm -hmm. and not needing anybody else to be able to solo everything. But it's more of like a game trope rather than an actual like fantasy. Right. Right, it's that hack and slash trope. Eventually, you get so big it doesn't matter what opponent opponent you fight. You just kind of kill your way through everything. Right. Um, but it is still really just both in terms of popularity and generally its own hilarity. Mm-hmm. Top ten. So Bleach gets kicked off the list. That's how it goes with most shonen. I find most shonen don't make it onto the top ten list. Hunter Hunter didn't make it onto my top ten list because it's a little too shonen. Um, 
Another really popular one that came out recently is um, Seven Deadly Sins, which would... Mm, I've heard about that before. Well, yeah, sorry, One Punch Man. I would put Seven Deadly Sins at 10. One Punch Man would be 11. So top 11. Because the character development in that is just too good. And the world building and the relationships you build with those characters that quickly is way too good. So One Punch Man is number 11 for all you fans out there. Maybe if the second season comes out, that'll change. But I highly doubt it because Seven Deadly Sins is so good. But And we will make this list publicly available and shareable. Oh, yeah, for sure. I have no qualms defending any of this. Um, <laughs> you could... I would argue... I could I would hear arguments as to whether or not Cowboy Bebop beats out Samurai Shimplu mm-hmm. for third versus fourth, but beyond that, the list is pretty much set. SAO and Spice and Wolf could contest for their positions. Code Geass is pretty much set where it is, although it could take fifth place as well, depending on how, depending on if you just take Lelouch of the Rebellion. Yeah. So um, what is Lelouch? So Lelouch of the Rebellion is basically the story of the bastard prince who was thrown out of the kingdom at, because he was destined to become the heir to the kingdom. And the, and the king treated him like shit because he didn't want people to perceive him as a possible target. So his father treated him like garbage, threw him and his sister out and abandoned them, basically made it look like they abandoned him, made it look like he killed his mother and all these other things. When really the king of Britannia and... Lelouch's father and their mo- and his mother were basically planning to conquer the world to create a perfect world for their children, uh, Lelouch and his little sister. Lelouch, living his whole life in ostracism, grows to hate him so much that he inevitably ends up leading a rebellion campaign against him. When he finds out what at the when he gains access to the Gios gates, he realizes that no matter what he does, his father will end up being right even if he supersedes his father and usurps his father's position of power. So he ends up sacrificing himself to his best friend, who was a former knight of the realm, and his friend ends up killing him and taking on the face of Zero, the villain that he plays as the rebel. And the world turns on in true freedom, with basically everybody in the capital family being killed. It's amazing. The political dialogue and back and forth there is really good. It's a little fillery, but its exposition is one of those where all the fillery exposition comes back to play a part. Right, it's a good payoff. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of up and down with the protagonist mm-hmm. and a lot of forward and backward. It's based around the model of chess, so it's really good. Um, I could hear arguments about whether or not Full Metal Alchemist should be number two, but... No matter what I think about, I always come back to the philosophy of Full Metal Alchemist. And once you get through it and you understand the philosophy of it, it's so high up. It's hard to argue. What? Full Metal Alchemist? Full Metal. Mm-hmm. Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> How did you say that? Let's There's only one way to say it. Let's take a break. All right. I'm going to revisit this podcast. All right. Sounds good. Are you sick and tired of ads? Well, this is an ad to tell you that you don't have to listen to ads. Stitcher Premium has some of your favorite shows ad-free, like Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, My Favorite Murder, 
Science Rules, and Dr. Death. It also includes early access to Stitcher Originals, bonus episodes, comedy albums, and more. Go to stitcherpremium.com and upgrade your account for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Plus, sign up today through our website and get your first month on us. It's 2019. Ads are optional. Thank you for sticking with the podcast. As we go on this break, I want to remind you we're a Stitcher Premium affiliate. So you can use code ASPACE at checkout to get one free month of Stitcher Premium on us. Again, that's code ASPACE at checkout when you're registering for your Stitcher Premium account and you get one free month of Stitcher Premium on us. Also, do you want to get this podcast ad-free? You can go and support us on Patreon and for $5, you can get this podcast without any of the ads, any of the plugs, and we can get that for you. We can drop that down in the description of this podcast you can also go to our facebook page a space podcast and also if you can't reach us there you can reach us on social media channels at a space podcast thank you very much for listening we're going back into the podcast right now all right welcome to podcast number seven part two we got the coffee we're ready to go folks so left off talking about writing anime for you to go watch if you're not an anime head already how to get into it I guess now we get into the process yeah man the writing process alright cool so like you want to talk about how you form your writing process yeah I I want to know did you mean that like objectively or subjectively like both so I want to talk about the process objectively first and then talk about how you subjectively create it for yourself Because I feel like it's an important process, both as a thought experiment for people to be able to do in order for to engage critical thinking, conscious and analysis of the world around them and things that happen to them in terms of being able to interpret and understand it and process information in a way that is helpful versus a way that's unhelpful. Um, So the process, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is a generic umbrella concept of the process by which writers or content creators or artists go about creating their art or their process or their content. This is called the process, and it varies from person to person, from different art to different art forms. and so the thing that we're going to talk about first is just generally what it, what it's understood to be, right? Like, what is the importance of it? Why is it persisted as this thing for so long? So Nimbus, I know what I want to say about it, but what do you want to say about it? I know we were talking about, you know, making sure that we're not cutting each other off and things like that. So you go ahead and take the first swing. Oh, no. If you, I'm, I'm listening to you, and if I have anything I want to cut and say, then I'm going to just... Okay. All right, cool. Um, So the process, to generally put it, is just a simple way of of concentrated thinking. It is a mental engagement and exercise that you choose to undertake to cultivate your understanding or to express your understanding of a certain subject that's of interest to you. And that's a really abstract way of saying it's a it's the way you think about something that you like. 
So for artists, let's say you're writing a song, you have a process as an artist about how you go about writing a song. Even if you say that your process is, I have no process, well, then that's still your process. You don't tie yourself down to a specific setting or a specific condition in your environment to bring out the creative juices in your mind or anything like that. You just go, okay, I'm just going to go wander around and wait for the universe to talk to me. Okay, that's fine. That's still your process. It's just not a set-in-stone way of doing things. Most major success, major being successful writers have a process of some sort. Um, for instance, uh, Toni Morrison's process was always the same. She went to the same hotel, got the exact same room, had it set up the exact same way every time. She'd get up in the morning, go check in, sit in her hotel all day. They'd, all that they would put in there is a thing for coffee and water in her room. That was it. She'd go rent a hotel room, cut herself off from the world, and she would sit down there with her coffee in the morning in her room and write. And for her, that that her for Toni Morrison, that's what she says worked for her. Um, Stephen King has his own process, which he's a little more tight-lipped about. Um, but basically, from what I understand, his process is basically he sits down at his desk, and depending on what he's writing, he focuses on the on the elements he wants to bring to the table. Right, like what are the, he he starts basically with the outline of ideas, and once he has those ideas, he writes the ending first, and then he works his way backwards. Right, so if he wants dark, death, mayhem, drama, uh, anti-hero, uh, dramatic, seizure, or um, something more incredibly sci-fi or mystical. These are things that I guess he would jot down on his paper, concepts that he would be thinking about, and then he would write the resolution to his story. And then he would work his way back. Um, specifically, I remember him talking about this with, in his process for, ready pl for writing the book Ready Player One, which is a fabulous book if you've not read it. Go read it. The movie's great. Did a really good job adapting the book to the movie. Not entirely one-to-one, -one, of course, but still very... The, the artistic licenses that the directors and creators took with the cinematic scenes was still very much in the realm. Um, and so these are, these are the things that we're talking about when we're talking about process. When I'm talking about process, you have a set, you either have a set thing that you do or process that you go through to engage your brain, to get your brain focused in on one thing, or you don't. I had a roommate in college, Hampton. Shout out to you, Hampton. You're also from our neck of the woods. And he was a communications and English major, I think. And he would literally <laughs> spend six hours a day walking around campus in the city. Just walk around, come back, do some writing. Walk around, come back, do some writing. Walk around, come back, do some writing. Never hung out, never really, like, shot the shit with us unless it was, like, super late at night. He was always a little awkward, always a little, like, too invested in the conversation kind of thing. Always just, like, kind of sort of forcing a laugh, which was really cool. It was, like, you could see that he was really trying to be engaged, but his head was totally elsewhere. 
Um, he was a really cool dude, but his process was literally just to wander around the city. He wandered around Greensboro all day long, in between classes, after classes. Um, he did it so much that he ended up wandering into the uh, fashion and art design building, and somehow he ended up getting ring-rolled into being a model for the students. He was like six four, mm. lean, like real lanky, like real tall and slender body build. And mm-hmm. so he was like the perfect model type body for like clothing and fashion. Yeah. For long design. So he ended up doing that on the side as well. But point being that in developing your process, you have to figure out what works for you. What do you do? What do you like? What makes you comfortable enough to free up your mind? What what helps you relax enough to free up your mind to just wander and think about things that you that you have interest in? What make where what are you doing when you're thinking about your game and what you want to see for the next installment of your favorite video game franchise or your favorite TV series or your whatever, you know? That's the kind of setting you want to put yourself in to help get those juices flowing whether it's coffee, have a have a whiskey or a beer or something seclude yourself maybe go out to a bar and you write surround yourself with a lot of noise and a lot of people so you have information coming in and stimuli coming in pardon me this is what goes into the process and it and it it can take a long time to form it for me i would definitely say my process has evolved um I do a lot of really good writing myself in various circumstances, depending on my subject. Um, I don't mind writing out in public. I don't mind going to a bar or a bookstore or a cafe and writing. But I'm always like conscious of everything around me, so it's kind of distracting to a certain degree. If it's a quiet place, it's not so bad. Um, but primarily, I find that I do my best writing when I'm just totally secluded i'm sitting at it doesn't really matter where i'm sitting i could be at a desk or at a table or in the woods or on a park bench but basically i've got my headphones in i'm cut off from the world and i'm focused in on what i'm writing and i'm i'm projecting my mind into the world that i'm writing as if i'm experiencing it from the character that i'm writing about whether that's the antagonist the protagonist and then sort of like visualizing yourself doing it like going through those actions that I'm writing. Yeah. And so a lot of times I'll write in first person and then have to go back and edit it into second or third person. Um, I've gotten better about that. I've gotten better about just like knowing the barrier, having the barrier in my head for my hands to just write he, she, they, it, whatever. But for me, it's just, I gotta have music. I have music in my head that is just, it focuses me in. And I either have coffee or I have a drink or something just to like, sort of like give my hand something else to do other than write and type. That way it forces me to just like wait. And then I'm forcing myself to reread as I pause what I'm doing. So that I'm still processing what I did write and still thinking about new stuff, right? That way it's not just a stream of consciousness that that's going to take like eight hours to edit through what's good and what's bad, right? Sort of like starting the editing process a little early 
while still evolving what I'm writing. I've been trying to figure out where I'm going to end up. And that that goes into the second part of my process where I, I write like snippets of shit. <laughs> I don't write like a conscious linear flow. Like I don't start at one end and go to the other. I just kind of write scenes and images. And then I kind of play with them like a jigsaw puzzle in my head. Where would this fit? Would this fit? You know, would this fit further back in the uh, character arc or would it fit further down the line? Is this what I want? Is this the critical point? Is this the, the test? Is this the approach of the innermost cave for the hero or the antagonist? Is this the refusal? Where does this fit in? That, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. All that's just drumming around in my head, which is why I have to have the music because the music just kind of keeps everything else out mm-hmm. so I can focus on that and I find myself very irritated very easily if that shit gets interrupted so like I try not to do a whole lot of it out in public mm-hmm. um, especially because right now I'm working on some darker stuff which requires me to be in a very dark place in my head that I don't like going to that I don't like remembering and it brings up a lot of negative feelings from when I was younger that are helpful for writing, but are not great to be feeling when I'm out and around people. So I've been kind of stalled out on that, on those two things. Um, and it's really hard to like get myself into that mindset right now. It's very difficult because once I'm in that place, I'm in that place for a while. Last time I was working on it about a month ago or three months ago, rather, um, well, it's two different pieces. Last time I was working on the other piece, on the short story piece, it was probably about six months ago, and it fucked me up for about a month. Mm. I was dealing with shit for about a month after, like, just writing most of that scene. And then I was started another piece, like, three months later, a poem that I'm still working on, and I've hit another roadblock because it's gotten to that point where I have to, like, really be focused in on it and really be in the zone, which is a really dark and, like... absent of consciousness realm almost Mm -hmm. and so whenever i get there it's harder for me to come up out of it so it's just been very difficult getting that done but i want to get those two things done before i move on to anything else right what about you man for me uh all right so I echo a lot of things similar to you. First of all, when I write and I go to a dark place, for me, if you know my formula for how I write, you would know probably exactly what my character is like. So I'm not going to explain why I write the way that I do. Because then you know who I am if you're reading my stuff. <laughs> but... um. I tend to like, I tend to put all of what I've experienced in life into a story and box it in that way so I don't really have to deal with it. Mm. So um, that's the reason why a lot of times that I write. And that's probably the reason why when I start a writing project, when I start it, I have to be alone. And I have to be 
no one can bug me. You can't come and talk to me. Like, when I start it, that's fine. After I start it and I've got a clear picture, then I can kind of write it in any environment. But when I start it, I kind of have to be in front of my computer or paper because I do both. I type and write. And I kind of have to be like, like closed off because, and this is mostly for novel writing, because when I start it, I think about the whole plot and I play it out like a movie in my mind. It's like everything that I write, I can kind of see it already as a movie as I'm writing it. So that's kind of why initially I just have to be cut off because I can sometimes lose that feed to what the story is telling me. And going back and relaying the groundwork after I'd already done it is kind of difficult. So like I feel like there's this point that I have to reach where I'm comfortable because I've gotten everything out to lay the groundwork for what I'm writing. And that's the point that I need to be alone. And after that, I can pretty much write anywhere because I can always go back and do it. Now, the reason why I have to include the hero's journey in more of my work, not only because it's a good way to write your characters, but because I take a very linear way at writing. So like I don't chop it up, but lately I've been kind of chopping it up and writing my novels in like separate scenes mm -hmm. because that's good for me to start progressing towards something because I get to this point where I literally linearly evolve my character and then my characters just kind of like bottom out and level out and nothing really new happens so I need something to push the story forward so I've started writing in chunks like, I've started going into the future and writing chunks that I know want to happen and then building on putting those two, working on the stuff in the middle and putting them together. So, that that's kind of what I've been doing. I've also noticed that I have an issue with uh, writing villains. Mm -hmm. and yeah, we were talking about this the other day. Right, that's a, that's a big thing for me because... Um, most of my characters, I write them to be the protagonist of the story, but for them to also have this duality, like this dichotomy within them, like the good side and the bad side, which gives them strength, but also can be their biggest weakness. So that's kind of why I have an issue with writing villains. And I think I have an issue connecting my hero with a villain because I don't I don't really focus a lot on relationships between characters when I write novels. Mm -hmm. I focus on my character's relationships with society mm -hmm. or with nature. So mm -hmm. sometimes I don't really develop really antagonizing characters like that, which probably need to start doing so you gave me some really good feedback on that the other day that yeah i'm taking into account so my yeah. writing process is progressing and getting a little better um you know it's always been a way for me to like take everything inside of me 
and express it in a way that's healthy instead of lashing out and right. getting some type of way. Um, yeah. And originally it started with poetry, but originally I gravitated towards novel writing because it just allows for me so much more freedom of expression because ultimately my strength is in world building. Like I'm really like with every novel that I make, I'm really adamant about world building. I sometimes like pro, my protagonist and the world building is the only thing that really means anything to me. Mm-hmm. Villains, antagonists, supporting characters, they don't really mean much. But well, having a protagonist is. and having significant world building is like really important to me. And I feel like everything else can come later. Mm. I don't know why that is. I don't know. I don't know why that is. You think you're too single-minded in your writing? Mm. Like you're just too focused on building the perimeter of the puzzle? Well, not even that. Because like if I have more than one protagonist. Mm-hmm. Or like sometimes I'll write a protagonist and like two or three supporting characters. And they're the only people that I care about. That and the world building. Mm-hmm. But then I realized that I need characters to push my main characters forward, and I just have trouble with writing them, and like I don't really give them any identity, which is like frustrating. See, for this me is why I think you need to get more into anime, especially a shorter mm-hmm. series, um, because it, it gives you a really good. I don't want to say diagram, but sort of like a blueprint. Blue blueprint. That's a brewery. Blueprint. Blueprint Brewing. <laughs> Shout out. Um, no, it gives you a good blueprint for the evolution. Like, really, like, key factors for a character's evolution that they have to hit. Um, and then the longer, more shonen anime tend to give you a lot more of that world-building filler that you already excel at. Mm-hmm. Which is why you would probably really like the shonen stuff like Naruto or One Piece. The longer yeah. stuff where you get all these little bits and different characters that might pop up a hundred episodes apart from each other. Yeah. Um, but in terms of helping you get better, I think paying attention to the shorter series ones like Ghost in the Shell, going back to Samurai Shenplu, Psychopaths would be another really good one for you. Um, mm-hmm. It's a two-part series. There's Psychopaths and Psychopaths 2. Um, Spice and Wolf, I think, would be really good for you. Just in terms of like showing you like an archetype for the protagonist developing a relationship and then it changing and growing and being threatened over time. Yeah. Um, Fate Stay Night would be another really good one for interpersonal relationships and developing those and creating those. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would rec- definitely recommend those. Um All that being said, I think my weakest point in my writing is the consistency of detail that I give the characters. Okay. Like, I'm really good at drawing up worlds. And, mm-hmm. like, I will spend, like, two pages on somebody's, like, on the details of somebody's look. Yeah. And then I'm like, and then there's a flying machine. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <bro. laughs> 
It's like, okay, what the fuck does that what thing look like? Yeah. Right. Like, and in my head, it's like some like animalistic shape flying machine or whatever, I guess. I don't know. But it's like, I spend so much time on certain things. And then other times I'm like, ah, this is not important. It's whatever. But I can't do that because for some people that's really important. Those details feed into the attachment, so to speak. Um, or like, I spend a lot of time. So I, I spend a lot of time on my villains mm-hmm. and making them like drawing them up so people can really have an image of the antagonist and what the hero is railing against so that they can understand the inevitability of mm-hmm. failure, right? Like what happens if this book doesn't go the way I think it's going to go, if it's not a good story, right? Yeah. I want them to have the image of a really dark, depressing reality so that when they're reading, they, they're hoping and that they're, they're connecting even more to the hero and hoping and praying for that hero's success in the story. Right, so that when they are connected to the protagonist and the protagonist uh, group, that every person in there is part of the connective tissue. Yeah. And in contrast, then my hero's like, eh, I don't know. Is he going to wear white and gold, I guess? Like, it's really hard to, like, set into, like, a specific style for my heroes, for my protagonists that I want to be well done because I want I don't want to box myself into any one protagonist I want to be able to kill off a protagonist and not just have it be a plot device I want it to be a meaningful connection to that protagonist who's then dead which causes a cataclysmic event and causes a shift in the story one way or another for the reader like a passing of power kind of sort of but like, like a mantle from one person right, to it's another. like this like person's the, gone, so now the rest of the group has to carry that burden on their shoulders. Or the reader no longer is going to have that short, sarcastic, snippy wit from this one character because they died. Maybe heroically or maybe tragically, whatever. They're, they're dead and gone, so that element of the book, of the, of the series, is now gone. And you're left with whatever you're left with. And that's going to draw you into those other characters even more. Right. And so I don't want to like... It's really hard because I don't know who I want my hair to be. I don't want it to be really simple from the get-go. I don't want it to be plain. I don't want it to be, oh... Well, George is like the best of the three. And he's the most well-rounded. So he's going to be the hero at the end of the books. Whatever. Like, Mm. I don't want that. I kind of want it to be like a three-card Monty guessing game. Right, where I'm always just moving the power around and moving the shift of destiny around to see who's gonna be the one at the end. And that way I'm not boxing myself into who's gonna have to die when or anything like that, or who's gonna have to be sacrificed, or who's gonna inevitably end up becoming my hero. Which so I think then is what. Right, but somewhere. I feel like that like slows down my development and I don't care about the creation of them as much so I'm like oh, I'll just shift it later mm-hmm. and that that that's not good for storytelling it makes it it's not that it's not good for storytelling it's harder to write it that way yeah it's harder for me to give a shit about the characters I'm writing when I know I'm gonna like shuffle them around <laughs> yeah but I guess if you make some mystic power more greater than them You'll have the easier time 
mm-hmm. dealing with passing on from one character to another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> I just think writing is something that we probably need to focus more effort and time into. Yeah. So I think the next time we record this podcast, we should have somewhere for people to go to see something that we've written recently. That'd be dope. Like a self-publication thing. Or yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's set it up. Subscribe or donate to us on Patreon and you'll get exclusive access to our beta rating. Something yeah. like that. Keep, keep, keep posting, guys. We're going to put something out there. We're going to put something out there. Okay. Yeah, man. So just using that as a as a pathway for free expression. Mm-hmm. You know, writing is one. Man, let's talk about comedy. Okay. All right. Yeah. Because we've talked about. Yeah. We've pretty much had everything for the writing now. So. I mean, because this, this is also something that. Is also a form of like right. a way for people to express and unload their emotions. Right. But I feel like I don't know. Sometimes I feel like while I'm writing my work, I feel like deep down inside, I feel like I think about how will this come across to the vast majority of my audience. Mm-hmm. what do I have to include what do I not have to include and I feel like that's a subject that all artistic people are having to think about now because of this culture that we live in that tries to like kind of attack the arts and make it and make artistic forms subject to societal pressures exactly so yeah, which, I don't really like that shit which Okay, representation is not a bad thing, but... I can't just I mean, be pandering. Okay, so when we talk about stuff like comedy, mm. comedy needs to be something that's raw and uncut for a reason. Because sometimes, I don't know, in my personal opinion, sometimes you need to offend people or get under people's skin to sometimes form a connection with them. Mm-hmm. Or to even have a conversation around a specific subject. Some conversations would not be had if it wasn't for conflict. Right. Period. Yeah, that's true. And just like this podcast, just like any novel you read, any book you read, these art forms start conversations and the main crux of a comedian stand-up act is them having this sort of conversation call and response mm-hmm. between them and the crowd. Right. And it's called crowd working. Right. And you can't you can't try to like mitigate the creative process and have creative control over a comedian just because you don't agree with the topics that they're talking about. Yeah. So I've seen a lot of comedians talk about how deal how to deal with people like that in the audience, like hecklers, yeah. who are like trying to like they crack like a joke about incest or abuse or something. And they go, "Don't do that. You can't say that. That that hurts me." And they go, "That's cool. Fuck off." 
Right. Because it's not it's it's not your show, right? It's you're there to consume the comics perspective. Right. Right. Whether it's your live stand up or you're watching a stand up special, right? Um, you're there to consume their perspective. If you don't like it, that's fine. That's your opinion, but you don't get to supersede their opinion, especially not in the United States. Your freedoms only go so far as your neighbor's nose. Right. The old saying, and that basically means your freedoms go as far as so they don't encroach upon somebody else's. The second they start to do that, your freedom ends because you're violating somebody else's. You're only as free as, as you're only free enough to the point that you don't harm others. Right. Right. So if they say something that you feel harms you, you get to leave because you're at their venue. It's their space. It's not your house, right? You're not in a public space. Even if you're on a street corner and they're performing on a street corner, it's their corner, it's their performance. You're there to listen to that. If you don't want to, you can walk away. That's your right. But your right is not to cut them off and censor them. Right. You don't get to go, I don't like that, so get rid of it. That's not how it works. That's not how democracy works. That's not how freedom works in the U.S. That's not how the First Amendment or any amendment works. That's not how your civil or human rights work. And we've created this culture somehow in this country that it... When you form an opinion, society has to listen to it. And that's not the case. If you can prove that you're part of a group of people that is being systematically oppressed and discriminated against to the point that it's a detriment to the country, then the country has to listen. But until then, the country doesn't have to do squat. Universities don't have to cancel speakers. People don't have to listen to what you have to say. None of that. It's still just your bloody opinion. And it's unfortunate if you feel like that's not fair, but that's how freedom works. If you don't like it, move out. Go see how, how well your free speech works in other countries. Right. Also, there's something to be said for paying attention to the creative process, too, because I know, like, in Dave Chappelle's latest stand-up Sticks and Stones. He, like, talks about some controversial stuff. Bro. Presents it in a certain way, but then later on ties it back in Mm -hmm. to comment and put some commentary with it. Mm Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's about actually sitting back and listening to somebody listening to the art. I feel like we're in this time where we don't we don't give anybody time. Mm-hmm. We don't we have no patience. We don't wait. We don't sit back and wait for the thought to be complete before we before people react and lash out. Exactly. Right, so that that gets on to like outrage culture, which is kind of like the predecessor to cancel culture, which we were just talking about in terms of like people trying to get people fired, get their money taken away, get them removed off of their platforms like YouTube, 
other social media platforms, get their bank accounts frozen or kicked out by PayPal, Patreon, that kind of thing. Right. And it's just like that. Yeah. It's just an immature thought process, I find. Like, I've talked to people, you know, I've tried there and I've sat there in shouting matches where people were screaming in my face. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm just trying to, like, I'm trying to understand you, but you're just screaming at me like I'm your enemy. Yeah. And they're like, well, you're sitting here questioning me. I'm like, yeah, because I'm trying to understand. Would you prefer I ignore you? Like the guys that you're protesting? And then they go, well, if you're trying to listen to me, then why can't I talk? I'm like, because you're not talking. You're fucking shouting in my face. Which, yes, while I can hear you very clearly, you're not saying a whole lot. I'm trying to understand. And there's, the you know, and that's the thing when people are triggered and they're pissed off. It's really easy for them to get defensive when you're just trying to ask them a simple question like, why? You ask mm-hmm. them why and they go, how dare you not understand? I'm like, yeah. I'm trying. I think I know where you're coming from, but I'm trying to get you to say it yeah. so that I know that I'm right or that I'm on your side or not. I'm trying to figure out which side of the fence we're on. Right. You know? And so, <sighs> it's a young and immature thing and for some reason people in their late 20s are doing that shit now. Like, you're supposed to be a fully grown adult who can, like, think and and have a thought process and try and understand, take yourself out of your shoes for a minute and just tr- at least try, even if you fail, at least try to have a civil conversation. And then we're not even there. You know, we talked about this before with social media and just, just it's negative impact on the, on the world. And I feel like I've seen it bleed over into reality more and more. Right, like it bleeds over into the real world where people are short-tempered, they react, and they start giving their exposition on their opinion before you've even gone over all the facts of a situation. Right, like you go to your bar and you talk to your your regulars that you see there or whatever, and you're talking about current events, like the Sticks and Stones comedy special or Kevin Hart's new comedy special just came out where he's addressing his controversy. Like, yeah. and people are just like reacting. Yeah, it's docu-series. That's what I meant. Great. And they're just like fucking going off and reacting. I'm like, I didn't ask what your opinion on it was yet. I just asked if you had heard about it. Right. Like, what? It's crazy. And then you con- you conflate that with the with the child of outrage, which is cancel culture, and you end up with this censorship on the on the on the creative process of comedy of writers i mean jk rowling just got dragged through the mud by her own fans Mm. like her her diehard fanatic fans because jk rowling was a she came out in support of um some writer who didn't want to I don't know if it was one of the Star Wars producers or what, but they didn't want to... The writer she was supporting didn't want to change... Didn't want to build a character around, like, a cis or transgender identity. Mm -hmm. Because they thought it was going to be too complicated for the average reader to understand. Yeah. And 
J.K. Rowling was like, that's a really good point. I think it's really important to keep keep things as simple. And I guess I think she might have used the word binary for readers. And people went fucking ape shit. I was like, what? Like, they're just talking about writing techniques. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. I was like, Jesus Christ. Her own fans. Her own fanatic fan base that will tell you the Harry Potter series is the greatest series ever written for all of time. And they're like, yeah. oh, fuck J.K. Rowling. Like, what? Like, that, if that in and of itself doesn't show people how disjointed the conversation has become around the ability just to talk. Mm-hmm. Then I don't know what else you need to. I don't know what other piece of evidence you need to witness in order mm-hmm. to understand that we're in this crux of a problem where we have censorship going on active, actively by people to a degree that we haven't seen in thirty years. Mm-hmm. That's crazy to me. And like I don't know, and I don't understand how comics do it. Like, if I was to try and get into stand-up, dude, I don't have that pay-my-dues attitude that old comics have. Like, Joey Diaz and Joe Rogan and Ari Shafir, they're like, yeah, you know, you were a doorman, and then you moved up, and then you got your spot, and you got a 10-minute spot of 15, and opener and showmaker. I don't have that. My ass would get thrown out of a club for starting a fight with a heckler. I'll come off the stage beating your ass, telling jokes. Well, probably... That's probably the lane for you. <laughs> Phil's Punch House. <laughs> comedy club. Oh Go my god, Phil's punch. punch House. I'm like, it just doesn't make sense to me how you could go... Like, you don't go over to your friend's house and mm-hmm. tell them how to operate in your friend's house, do you? Like, you don't go over to your friend's house and tell their mom or, or their dad how to treat you. No. You're not like... Cook me an entire separate dinner because I'm joining you guys for dinner and I don't eat what you got to eat. You don't right. say that. Right. Nobody in their right mind does that shit. That's crazy talk. So why would you go and interrupt somebody else's freedom of speech or freedom of expression and tell them how to express themselves when you yourself feel like you are being oppressed or you're being censored in some way, shape, or form? Why would you then go and do that to somebody else? Well, because I think, I think they feel like these people have such an immense, vast amount of reach that they feel like these superstars set the bar for how society is mm. supposed to act and react to certain situations, which is like, with Kevin Hart, like, instead of people understanding that he apologized already and he was just fed up with the same question being asked all the time, People just wanted to know, wanted him to publicly advocate that he doesn't support violence against people for making certain decisions. Which is not a problem. But at the same time, I feel like Had he apologized for his comments in the past, and you've seen that he's apologized for it, he hasn't made any jokes like that in years about that specific thing. Mm-hmm. I guess one can deduce that he doesn't have that train of thought anymore. Right. He doesn't believe in that anymore. But people want him to publicly come out and admit it. 
So people want him to have, have well, a position. She did like two comedy specials ago. That people want him to have a position, and when they tell him to jump, they want him to jump. Yeah. And that's the thing and that kills him. because he was putting so much money in so many people's pockets, and the people that were putting money in his pockets were the fans, and had he isolated himself from his fans and had the money taken out of his pockets, he was going to be affecting so many much more people than him. Like, his brand, him as a comedian, uh-huh. as, as an actor, had he took a hit, his company would have took a hit, and everybody that he employed, all 50-plus, uh-huh. be struggling. would be struggling. Right. And I get, I get... Which is... I get that. Like, kind of messed up, because then you're thinking to yourself, in this culture... We care more about somebody taking a stand for a specific issue than we care about looking at how the impact of our outrage can impact more than one person. Right, more than the person you intend to target. Exactly. We don't look at the fallout anymore. So, I feel like... Do I agree with the community when they wanted him to come out and admit that? Yeah, I agree with them, but... I just don't think it was worth ruining his pockets for. No, not at all. It's really... It seems like the line for... for for recompense has come drastically close to the line of ruination in our country. Right, the line that we're allowed to say we're gonna take all this up to this point is dangerously close to the ruination of people's lives. In some cases, it straight up ruins their careers. Um, comedians seem to be more resilient to it than most. Um, and I think that's just because c- comedy as a culture and comedians as as artists have come along, have come so much further in, in building their own niches and building their own groups of support networks that they're more resilient as a, in comedy as an industry is more resilient because the people in that industry are you are accustomed to working with unique individuals on a daily basis who are not going to censor themselves and they're not going to censor you. And so they don't have to adhere to an outrage mob the same way a teacher has to, right? Or the same way um, a politician has to, or whatever. It's... My concern, however, still remains that for everybody else who's not a fabulously wealthy and, and established stand-up comedian yeah even just other like low-ranking comedians like you say something the wrong way and somebody takes it out of context and blows it up on social media or in the in the news or something and all of a sudden everything that you had been working for is gone 
Yeah. You're ruining somebody's life over a comment, over an, maybe it's it, maybe it's their true opinion, or maybe it's just something they said that's been taken out of context. You haven't bothered to do that to do the homework on it. You're just reacting and starting up a fucking wildfire in their backyard that's gonna burn down their home, burn down all their shit, burn down their money, and you're throwing them basically to the wolves and saying you deserve this because of ten words that you said. No, I don't care if it was an accident or if it was intentional or unintentional or if it was taken out of context. I'm just part of the fucking outrage. That's dumb. That's ignorant. And that's what leads to fucking civil unrest and death, loss of innocent lives. And it's what leads to wrong wars being fought. And people have got to understand that. People have got to understand that you can't just run around censoring people because you don't like what they're saying. Because if you start doing that, that justifies other people with more power doing it to you. Exactly. You run around up here on the internet and you're starting shit up on the internet about people. Now Donald Trump is doing it. (laughs) (laughs) He's been doing it. But you start running around doing that shit to people. What's to stop that person, one of those people whose houses you burnt down from showing up in real life to your house... Right, you're calling for these teenagers to be DDoSed and for these young kids to be DDoSed and be harassed and attacked and things like that. <clears throat> what stops them from then coming after you with a legitimate physical mob to your house? Right. What's your justification in court? Well, I only violated his his rights because he said something. Mm. Well, that's free speech. He's allowed to say it. So you violated his rights for no actual reason. He only came after you because you ruined his life and you attacked him or her. That doesn't work in the court of law. Right? And this is the thing people have to keep in mind. The way society functions is not necessarily the way society laws and regulations operate. There's this underlying current in, in in the United States of de jure versus de facto in the way society operates and the way the law is written. And you may think that you can stretch it further than you actually can. Right? You coming on your social media platforms and harassing somebody is not necessarily legal. It's not necessarily your freedom of speech. Similarly, it's also not necessarily your right and your freedom to censor and target somebody for something they said in or out of context. That's not how it works. That's just not. You got to shift that mindset because that mindset is going to lead you down the wrong path and you're going to get screwed one day. Right. By hook or by crook, it's going to break. And free speech, the First Amendment, will survive. And it'll be around a lot longer than any of us. Crooked says by hooker. Yeah, by hooker or by crooker. No, by hook or by crook. Oh, man. Which is an old, like, saying for, like, shepherds and leading a flock of sheep. Right. All right, so um, it's getting late. Let's call it a little early. Want to do that? Uh, lightning round. Let's yeah, let's get into that. All right. Um, all right. Well, we actually gonna hit the timer out. Yeah, I'll pop it out. Right, we'll do it. Pop the timer out. We got we got two minutes. <sighs> so we have some Fuck. people come in with a couple of questions, and we're just gonna I'm gonna pose the questions. I'm going to get a response from Gambler. 
They ain't gonna give a fuck for me. I'm gonna move on. Two no minutes. No more. No more from it. All right. No two minutes. Right. Two minutes. Me or you first? You first. Okay. All right. So, do you think we should have death penalty pedophiles? And why? Starting the timer? Yes, I absolutely think we should have the death penalty. Um, Reasons, number one being, you can't give back that loss of innocence, and it doesn't make it better, right? No matter who you kill or how many people you kill, it doesn't make it easier for that child to live on with that trauma. But it does prevent that person from falling through the cracks in the system, getting out early, and hurting somebody else. That is the most guaranteed way to prevent that person from hurting somebody else. That being said, it would have to be a significant degree of trauma to warrant it, which I know is probably going to be controversial, right? But there is a physical and psychological traumatic difference between somebody who is harassed or molested versus somebody who is raped and tortured. Um, and that varies by person to person it's not just because of the physical trauma it it varies by person to person and on that person's emotional solidarity or emotional solitude and how how strong and resilient they are and while kids are very resilient and very adaptable they don't necessarily adapt in a good way Mm. and so that's something that has to be done on a case by case basis right that's that would be something I would say is up to the judge to decide in a bench trial or up to, you could say it should be up to the jury to decide, but juries pressure, juror members pressure each other into shit just to get out of jury trial faster all the time. It's been known to happen. It's been recorded in testimony after trial. So you can't always just trust the jurors to issue out the appropriate penalty at all times. That should be reserved for somebody like the judge who has an extensive background in weighing the cases and weighing merits. That's my time. Right up to the second. There you go. All right. What's the next question? Oh, for me. me. Mm. I'm going to do my response. Okay. Three, two. So, yes, my response is a little bit different because I feel like there's these inherent um, issues that we have in our psyche, in our mind, that we can pass down biologically from one person to the other. So there's this there's this argument of should we do chemical castration for sex offenders too? Mm-hmm. And I just feel like the whole point of life is to gain experience and pass some experience on and if you lose that right for doing something as heinous as engaging in sexual acts with a minor then you should just you should just die because you can't come back from that mm-hmm. like a child doesn't have that wherewithal to Physically and mentally to do anything about that most times. Mm-hmm. It takes years. Right. And then that imprint 
is with that person forever. So then you get off on like power and stuff like that. And I just don't think that's the type of thing that should happen. So do people have second chances? Yeah. But that's something you just don't get a second chance for in this life. And I'm sorry. With me. Pedophilia is one of them. That's just one of them. Fair enough. So, yeah. All right. Nice. The next one. Next question. I have to I have to get my phone because my computer died on me here. Ripperonis. I know, right? I'll be right back. In the meantime. I don't know what in the meantime. In the meantime, we're going to talk about alcohol. Alcohol's the best. Shout out. I was drinking another beer earlier. I didn't give it the time. But uh, shout out to uh, Wicked Weed. Despite <clears throat> having been bought out by a major big beer company, they, they did it solely so that they could provide their workers with better pay plans and retirement plans. So good on them for making that transition for the right reasons. But I'm drinking their uh, Burst Cherry Key Lime Sour from the Funkatorium. God bless the founder of Wicked Weed and all of his efforts and all of the team's efforts at Wicked Weed because this is one of the best sours I've had all year long. Thank you very much. From your friends here on the A-Space podcast, feel free to uh, hit us up about advertising or anything else that you think would be helpful for you. All right, next one. Next one. Do you feel like we should globalize one type of money? Do you mean like have like a global currency? Yeah. Okay. Good. I think a global currency would be a helpful thing. It'd be really annoying to make that work physically because you'd have to get all the countries on one page. And even then, let's say you would start at like the UN delegations, right? Not every country in the world is part of the UN. That's just a fact. However, there's going to be a point in the breaking point for humanity in general where we have to decide if we're going to pro progress forward with tribalism and fight for who's going to be on top and who's going to lead the world and, or move forward together and have a global consciousness as a global people, as the human race. Particularly when it comes to like expanding the human race to moons or other planets. And having a global currency would be a good step in that direction and creating a wider consciousness across the human race that spans more than one nation, right? And that would be a significant that would be one of the first steps I would say we're gonna have to take as a species in order to create a global consciousness, in order to get people to understand that we're all humans and that we're all people of one planet and that you're just going to have to get over the fact that some people are different than you and that you're going to have to get over the fact that in order for us to continue to live on, we have to grow our consciousness and be aware of other people across the planet all the time. The same way you're aware that there are people in Idaho that you don't know, but they're still American. Mm -hmm. you got to grow that global consciousness and I think a global currency would be one of the primary steps in that direction. So, yes, I think we should have one. Awesome. All right. Your response, Nimbus. Three, two, one. 
So, no. I do <laughs> not think we should have a global currency. I feel like as just as a culture on earth, we naturally flow towards having a meritocracy. And I feel like having currency originally based in based on a standard was making it so that whoever had the most conquest or the most cunning or put in the world's work kind of excelled. Now, now we don't have a standard backing our currency and now what we have is a fiat currency. So my thing about a global currency is once you do that, everybody's global currency standings become equalized. And that's not going to happen until we pay a lot of debt to China. <laughs> so we're going to have some type of indentured servitude situation going on when we do this whole global currency thing. I mean, not everyone in this world is commercially equal. So I don't really think having a global currency is going to be the best thing. Because then you're going to have, what, more people in America having more money per capita than you have people in other countries. Mm -hmm. And that's going to create even more inequality. So, no. All right. Fair enough. All right. What's up next? So, was it better to have a black president first or a woman (laughs) of any race? Interesting. Go. Uh, That's a complicated one. You could hem that up and just say it should have been an African-American woman first. And then that kind of resolves it all. But I don't know. I think it probably would have been... I think no matter which way you cut it, history would have remembered it the same way. It would have been... The great debate settled either between sexes or the great debate settled between races in the United States. Who can fuck it up better? Um, You know, people give the Obama administration a lot of shit for the things they did, but those motherfuckers killed Bin Laden, so shout out to them. If it had been a woman, I'd be shouting her name out too. It's hard to say um, because we haven't had a female president yet. And we haven't seen if that's made a significant difference in the success or failures of the United States on a global scale and on a national scale. We haven't seen if there's a calculable difference in the policy making. Um, although, again, you know, you have women of all kinds of backgrounds, just like you have men of all kinds of backgrounds. You know, I would say, like, a man like Bush should never have been president. Versus a woman like Tulsi Gabbard, who absolutely could be president, or should should be a president. And then you have women like Hillary Clinton, who absolutely should never be a president. So, I don't know. Time will tell. Yep. Three, two, one...
Man, I don't know. Yeah, uh, either one for me probably would have been a win for whichever side. And the job is going to be corrupt from the beginning. So the person holding the position really from then on is going to probably inherently just do something that people are not going to like. That's not a position where you're going to be like. And this is my thing in the black community where sometimes we aspire to be things that don't hold as much weight as we as we think that they do. Like we put more value on it than we should, if that makes any sense. So, um, yeah, I mean, don't throw a dog a bone when you don't deserve it. So don't put a woman in office just because you want to put them in office. Put them in office because they deserve it. Tulsa Gabbard deserved it. Fair enough. feel like Barack Obama deserved it. Same. All right. What's our next one? So, um, why Where are these citizens, coming from? Huh? Are these all from Tracy? People interacting on, or just uh, on okay. Facebook. Yeah. Well, shout out to you guys. Thank you guys. Definitely. Why are citizens not pissed off about the escalating and inflated cost of items and services when the cost of items and necessities are too much and the cost of living is constantly going up? So, like, the cost of living remains low. However, the cost of shoes, clothes, electric bills, and stuff like that keep increasing. While, I mean, you could say that the cost of living, I'm just giving my commentary here, is steadily increasing depending on where you're at. So, I don't know. Why? So, I guess the basic question here is why are citizens not pissed off about the escalating and inflated cost of items and services? Go. All right. Uh, I think they are pissed off is the thing. Um, I've, I've worked in several service industry jobs. I still work in the service industry. I've worked, I sell stuff online and people are always haggling with me about the cost. They're sending me emails. Hey, can you knock the price down? Even if it, I mean, most of the time it's like, just knock it off five bucks. I'm like, it's five bucks. You know, that's what you would tip at dinner, you know? Yeah. Um, I feel like people are very pissed off about it. We just don't hear a lot about it because it's not something that's catchy and flashy in our headlines and it's not something catchy and flashy for for advertisers to attach their ads to on social media and on the on, on the internet traffic, you know, which is how we consume most of our information nowadays. Yeah. But if you just stop into any restaurant or bar like or go around to the back and talk to the servers that are out there smoking, ooh, them motherfuckers are pissed. Mm. everybody's pissed about it. People are pissed about the cost of movie tickets now. Like, you want to go see some shit in IMAX? It's like 17 bucks a person. For what? 
for for a wider screen that you know doesn't actually cost that much more to produce that film reel? Like, come on. So I would say people are definitely pissed about it. Um, and I think rightfully so, because the cost of living has consistently gone up while the living wage is not. Right? Inflation's been coming in every year. We've gone up and down and up and down. We've had the recessions. We had the car bubble, car industry bubble. We had the housing bubble. We had the banking bubble. You know, now we're facing the student loan debt bubble, which is even worse because you don't, you can't default on it. You can't get rid of it through bankruptcy. Um, so, you know, I think people are definitely pissed that their money hasn't gone up to match the inflation rate. All right. Two, one. All right. So I echo your comment, but I think the underlying question of this was probably like, why are people not outraged that the cost of living is going up and their wage isn't going up to meet it? Which, um, I mean... What we don't understand is that this process in which we consume is not viable for the way that we want to continue. So companies really can't make a lot of money because they spend a lot of money in marketing and research to constantly get you to buy the stuff that they barely break even on getting. So Mm -hmm. then they keep raising the price. And they keep spending money, more money on marketing, and it's just that's the way that's the way that it goes. You have to keep getting at them and keep keep the money flow coming in to keep everybody happy. And I feel like ultimately, what we have to understand is that, gosh, two minutes for this is not enough. What we have <laughs> to understand is that there are so many different factors affecting this that we need to combat, but the biggest one I would say that's overarching is that we have more people now. So, just like a market becomes saturated, everything becomes saturated mm-hmm. now, with so many people being here on the world. So now, it's getting harder because there's less money to go around more people. Fair. Or the same amount of money. Fair enough. Alright. Alright, that was the last question. That's the last one. For our lightning round, we're going to call it a night. Um, thank you guys for tuning into the podcast. We really appreciate it. And you can catch us back on here next week, guys. Yeah.